Okay, so real quick, before I get started reviewing the movie Cujo, I want to let you know the original <laughs> file for this whole review ended up being six and a half hours long. I am not putting a six and a half hour, four hours, yes, maybe four and a half, but not six and a half hour review. I'm not putting that, I don't even think that would entirely go on SoundCloud. So what I've done is I've split it into two parts where they're both roughly probably like three to three and a half hours between them or whatever, a little over three hours. So part one is going to end where Charity and Brett Camber are packing up suitcases to go visit Charity's sister. So that's where part one is going to end. And then part two is going to start up where Cujo, who is fully rabid at this point, is going to make his first kill. He's going to kill his owner, Joe Camber's best friend, Gary. So that's where part two is going to begin. I'm releasing part one today as of t October 29th. And then part two is going to be on Halloween, October 31st. So that's on Sunday. So that gives you enough time to, you know, listen to the first half. And then it you give you something to look forward to, to, you know, finish listening to the rest of the review where a lot of the good stuff happens. Well, gosh, should I even say good stuff? It doesn't sound right. People die. People die in this movie. That's not good. So, all right. I hope you enjoyed listening to the review. I've, as I, I say in the beginning of this review, that I have been watching Cujo since I was 11 years old. I was obsessed with this movie. I think just because I love animals and it, you know, had a dog in it and everything. And it's just this movie has become a yearly rotation during October. And I just loved being able to share my feelings and thoughts and watching this movie with you, along with reading snippets from the book and, you know, playing clips from the movie. So I hope you, you all enjoy it and you have a good, happy, safe Halloween. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, Angela Bowen here, the host of Looking Back on My Wonder Years, a Wonder Years podcast. Well, today I am bringing you, I didn't think I'd be able to do this, but I got time. I got a little time before the month is over, and I've been wanting to cover this movie, I feel, for years since I even started this podcast, and I'm happy I'm able to actually get to it. This movie has been such a such a part of my childhood since I was like 10, 11 years old. Uh, to say that I was obsessed with this movie growing up is not enough. <laughs> that word is just not enough to describe this movie. And the movie I'm talking about is from 1983. It's Stephen King's Cujo. And I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis. Cujo, a friendly St. Bernard, contracts rabies and conducts a reign of terror on a small American town. He t I wouldn't say. He doesn't go on a rampage, I don't think. He's not, like, going from, like, here, there, and everywhere. But, so, yeah, this movie's got a 6.8 out of 10 based on 43,384 ratings. I'm going to go through the cast list real quick. We got Dee Wallace. You might have known her from 1982's E.T. Similar hair, short haircut. Same like she had a lot of, you know, short haircut in the 80s. Also in the movie 
the Howling, which I, I only watched some of it. The Daniel Hugh Kelly plays Vic Trenton. I think him being in this movie and me watching this movie so much is what actually got me into watching the soap opera All My Children with Erica Kane because he plays the ex-husband, Travis Montgomery, who he has a child with Erica, Bianca Montgomery. We have Danny Patero, who plays Tad Trenton. He, of course, you will know him as Jonathan Bauer, or Brower, from Sick, <laughs> from Who's the Boss, all eight seasons of Who's the Boss. We got Christopher Stone, R.I.P., as Steve Kemp. He and Dee Wallace were actually married at the time of filming this movie. We got Ed Lauder as Joe Camber. We got, I cannot pronounce her name to save my life, Kayulami Lee as Charity Camber. And Billy Jane as Brett Camber, who you would probably know more as season four and five of Silver Spoons. He played Rick's, one of Rick's best friends. He was also on Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I remember that he was also in an episode. He was Brad in Silver Spoons from 85 to 87. It was funny because I couldn't remember his name from Silver Spoons, even though I spent, what, two years covering that show? In fact, I just finished Silver Spoons in December of last year. So this movie was directed by Louis Teague, writer Stephen King, writer Don Carlos Dunaway, and Barbara Turner, although I guess she went under the name Lauren Curier. There is some trivia, which I think I'm just going to wait till the end of the movie. This review, I'm sure, actually is going to be pretty long. I do have the novelization. I do want to read some expert excerpts, whatever you want to call it, from that, so you get more of a example of what is going on when... Donna and Ted are trapped in the car. That way you kind of get a little more. Also, I'm, this honestly is the only book of Stephen King's I've ever read. I read it when I was maybe 12, read a little bit, and then also in high school. I read it in my sophomore year of high school. And there are just things that, one thing in particular about Steve Kemp when, if you've seen the movie, spoiler alert, he kind of trashes Vic and Donna's bedroom and jerks off on their bed, like ejaculates. I didn't know what the word cum meant as far as C-U-M cum. I just thought, I was reading that sentence over and over, like, what do you mean cum? What, I... So, <laughs> yeah, at 15, 16, I didn't know what that word meant. <laughs> But now I'm looking back on it now, it's just like, yeah. So yeah, I'm going to read a little bit here and there from different parts of the book and stuff like that. It does have a tie-in to the book The Dead Zone, which that is actually one of the tr pieces of trivia in, let me see if I can find it here. Trying to find, yeah, how, hold on, let me. Here we go. Here's a piece of trivia. It explains it. The original novel was a sequel of sorts following The Dead Zone. Since Frank, <coughs> excuse me, I've never seen The Dead Zone movie or, <coughs> excuse me, or the read the book. 
since Frank, the, and if you haven't read The Dead Zone or Cujo or seen either movie, you're not gonna, if you don't want to be spoiled, then just skip ahead like 15 seconds. Since Frank Dodd was killed, he became a kind of boogeyman in Castle Rock and supposedly haunted Tad. It is hinted that Dodd possessed Cujo. Sheriff George Bannerman, played by Sandy Ward. Come on, what are you doing? Stop playing with the cord, you goob. He's playing with my phone cord, goofy kitty. Sorry about that. Okay. Sheriff George Bannerman, played by Sandy Ward here, makes specific references to Dead Zone hero Johnny Smith. Both this movie and The Dead Zone from 1983, which came out the same year, were developed at the same time with this film released two months before by different studios, so the references were removed. Okay, so yeah, I actually did listen to a Stephen King podcast called King Me. When they were reviewing Cujo, they did mention that fact that because The Dead Zone and Cujo were put out in the same year they were developed by different studios so that whole which i'm glad it was removed because that would have been i'm sure confusing as fuck like for those that hadn't read the dead zone or seen the movie like what the fuck are you talking about like no just leave it i like the idea of the dog just contracting rabies and then just and I actually did a report on Stephen King and the movie Cujo. I showed a clip in class. I was like probably 2011. I um would record audio from the you know the tape. We had a t- someone I don't know whose tape it originally was, but they had taped Harry and the Hendersons, and then after Harry and the Hendersons was the movie Cujo. So I always associate one with the other because <laughs> it breaks from the credits from Harry and the Andersons and jumps right into Cujo but yeah I would like get like audio from the movie onto the tape and I would like go around school with my sister's little boombox thing playing the tape and everything no one else really got it or I, I would do that a lot with movies growing up Curly Sue was another one that I taped audio onto a little cassette tape <laughs> and it's weird how the audio just when you listen to the audio and you don't have a visual it just it kind of seems a little different but no I was literally I was obsessed to the point where ah oh my gosh I'm so happy I get to tell this because when I was living with my aunt and uncle or I would come over sometimes and I had the little cassette of, you know, Cujo with the audio, and I would play it on, you know, their stereo. My aunt was like, my kids don't listen to that kind of crap or whatever. Don't bring that over to my house and this and that. I'm thinking, it's not like we were little kids. We were like 11 or 12. I don't know why I thought they would be interested in listening to that anyway. But it's almost like I knew I was doing a bad thing, but I was doing it anyway because it just felt like kind of growing up like, ooh, I'm listening to a recording, so I'm in a, a grown-up movie or something I shouldn't be watching. But I was just obsessed. I was obsessed with this movie growing up, and I just, I think it just, and that, I mean, and this would, I would have seen this, like, before I saw the movie Beethoven. So it's my fascination with St. Bernard's and whatnot. Right, Quinny? That's right, baby. Don't worry, we're not going to bring a St. Bernard here. (laughs) She's like, you better not. Yeah, we'll save the trivia goofs and user reviews for the end of the review. 
So, yeah, one ultimate best ever Stephen King podcast that I would highly recommend that's probably been going on since 2015, 2014, since before I even knew what a podcast was. Stephen King cast. This guy, I credit him to me believing that a singular person can host a podcast by themselves. This guy helped me realize that. So, a little bit to him. And this guy, he goes in depth. If you're like, I don't really want to read the books. This guy goes through the entire books with, you know, quotes and just a Wikipedia summary and just all of that. He, if you don't like want to read a book and you, this guy's going to tell you the whole thing. He's like just breaking everything down in a way it's almost like. And some of, like, Stephen King's other works, like his newer... I was hoping he would get to that Billy Summers book that just came out by Stephen King, his newest book. But he hasn't gotten to it yet. But, I mean, this guy's got a catalog, a bunch long. Uh, 11-22-63. I would love to read that one. Because I hear it's such good. I did see the miniseries on Hulu. I liked it, even though I haven't read the source material. But... I think it's really good. I just, the idea of traveling back in time is just, wow, love it. Love time travel. And I actually, it was funny because one day years ago, like probably like three or more years ago, maybe four, I can't remember. It was around Jeremy's and I, our anniversaries, wedding anniversaries in July. And I was like looking for, you know, a book for him to get me. And it's called Nope. Nothing Wrong Here, The Making of Cujo. It's written and edited by Lee Gammon. I believe he also did another one called Christine. And it's really, really cool because it goes into a lot of, you know, not just dialogue, but St. Bernard's in general and just everything about the writing, the film process, everything bringing this movie to life. It's behind, behind the scenes stuff. It's just really, really cool looking. Um, I didn't get that far into it, but it's just, it's really cool. So, whoops, sorry, girl. I didn't mean to slam that book down. She got a little swift. Okay, there are a couple quotes here I want to start off in the book. One, by the sharp serial professor, nope, nothing wrong here. And something, there's a folk song called, Old Blue died, and he died so hard, he shook the ground in my backyard. I dug his grave with a silver spade, and I lowered him down with a golden chain. Every link you know I did call his name. I called, here, Blue, you good dog, you. Let's see, I don't know what that other one is about, but, um... Oh, it starts out with Once Upon a Time. This book starts out with Once Upon a Time. So the beginning of this book here, also, it starts with that whole thing about Frank Dodd saying not so long ago a monster came to the small town of Castle Rock, Maine, where the story is set. A lot of, well, maybe not a lot, well, a lot of his books are set around Maine, but at least a handful of them are set around Castle Rock. Uh, the Stand By Me, which is called, a novella called The Body, is also set in Castle Rock, however, the movie is set in Castle Rock, Oregon. So, just saying that this monster came to the small town of Castle Rock, Maine, killed a waitress in 1970, 
and a junior high student in 1971, a pretty another pretty girl in 74, teacher a teacher in the fall of 1975, and a grade schooler named so and so in the early winter of that same year. He was not werewolf, vampire, ghoul, or unnameable creature from the enchanted forest or from the snowy wastes. He was only a cop named Frank Dodd with mental and sexual problems. And apparently, you know, the guy was captured, he was killed. No, it just said, um, oh, that Frank Dodd killed himself. Okay. There was some shock, of course, but mostly there was rejoicing in that small town rejoicing because the monster which had haunted so many dreams was dead dead at last. A town's nightmares were buried in Frank Dodd's grave. So, and it also goes on to say about how some parents, maybe even grandparents, unaware of the psychological damage that they may do to their children. Surely that there was one parent somewhere in Castle Rock and perhaps one grandmother who quieted the kids by telling them that Frank Dodd would get them if they didn't watch out, if they weren't good. And surely a hush fell as children looked toward their dark windows and thought of Frank Dodd and his shiny black vinyl raincoat. Ay, 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 ay. Yeah. So we get. This is what scares little Tad. And that actually, when the movie does start, we're seeing the kid. He, you know, it's nighttime. He's going to the bathroom before he goes to bed and everything like that. So this just kind of sets that up. Except that the monster never dies. Werewolf, vampire, ghoul, unnameable creature from the waste. The monster never dies. It came to Castle Rock again in the summer of 1980. Tad Trenton, four years old, awoke one morning not long after midnight in May of that year, needing to go to the bathroom. He got out of bed and walked half asleep toward the white light thrown in a wedge through the half-open door. Okay. Alright. However, actually, I'm sorry, the movie does... You know what, let's just get into the movie right now. <laughs> I kind of gave you a little intro, you know, of how the story is set up in the beginning with this whole Frank Dodge serial killer type person that somehow was possessing possessing Kuja. Just I wanted to show how the difference of the opening of the book versus the opening of the movie is very different. Also, if you get the Blu-ray edition of Kujo, it does have a three part documentary behind the scenes with D. Wallace, Daniel Pintero, and the director and all these people. I keep forgetting that that thing pops up on this. There we go. The menu's really cool, too. I really like how it's got, like, a bloody ID collar. Oops. Sorry about I gotta turn the volume down on this thing. I didn't know it was so loud. Um. <laughs> but the menu is really, really cool. It's got the Pinto, the, the pale yellow Pinto in the camber's yard. You see the sun kind of going down, and you see Cujo just kind of, you see the back of Cujo just sitting there. He's covered in blood and blah, and just, and you just hear the Pinto trying to start up and everything like that. And it just, I really like how the menu, the DVD, the Blu-ray menu was done really, really effectively. 
But yeah, I mean, like I said, if you get, which I don't see why it wouldn't be available still on Blu-ray, but you would get the documentary series, the three-part documentary series from just about everybody's point of view. I'm trying to think if David Hugh Kelly also had some stuff to say on there or whether or not, but you know, we know that Dee Wallace did have, you know, she plays Donna, uh, Daniel Pintero, who plays Tad, young Tad, who's probably, he's, the actor is six at the time of the movie, but he's playing four, I believe. I also gotta say shout out to whoever does the score for this movie, because this is fucking amazing. And the opening here, with the swirling blood spelling out Cujo's name, wow. Remember the tape of Cujo, like, it cuts off of the credits of Harry and the Hendersons at the end, and we just see the swirling and then spelling out the name Cujo. So, of course, we see the cast come up. Daniel Hugh Kelly, Chris Stone, Ed Lauder, the lady who plays Joe Camber's wife. I can't pronounce her name to save my life. I don't even... Where the hell is Dee Wallace's name? Because now we're getting into the music, because we did see a title card that said, and introducing... Daniel Pintero. Yeah, it says, and introducing Danny Pintero as Tad. So this actually starts with the little bunny rabbit popping out of a hole, and then he goes into a field, and he, like, stands on his hind legs, and he's kind of, like, sniffing the air, and all of a sudden you see these two underneath the dog, you see the two front feet, and then the multiple dogs just in this shot alone of the dog chasing the rabbit. This rabbit is what kicks things off and kind of leads into what happens, kind of the cause and effect, where the dog is chasing the rabbit, gets his head stuck in a, a hollow log hole, and then the rabbit darts into what ends up being a cave, full of bats and Cujo is just barking you know the bats are sleeping it's it's daytime and he gets bit on the nose and one of the trivia thing or goofs I think does say something about you can see like the bat just before it bites Cujo <laughs> like it's on a string that it's a fake bat. But we just, it represents just how the dog is just a lovable, adorable St. Bernard. I mean, no one looks at a St. Bernard and sees, like, oh, it's a vicious dog and everything. But I think this kind of movie did kind of set the precedence for, like, oh, big lumbering St. Bernard. Oh, be careful. And how many times has the name Cujo been referenced for dogs that are just, just bad, I mean, dangerous dogs like oh watch out for Cujo the neighbor's dog or blah 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 you know I actually named I didn't even say that yet I named my cat Cujo and it's funny because Jeremy his brother had a guinea pig named Cujo but it was named after like one of the I thought it was Detroit Red Wing players last name was Cujo or like Christopher whatever I don't know what his name was but yeah but no I named my cat my black and white cat named Cujo after the dog. We actually spend a smidge amount of time real quick with the bunny as he's like hopping around and then he gets to this large ass, I wouldn't even call this a field, it just looks because you see the road right alongside. This looks like a, this looks like it could be turned into like a giant ass dog park. Yeah, and then you see the rabbit stand up and then you see like the camera in between the dog's legs 
And this jumps a lot from like, because there are short-haired St. Bernards and there are long-haired St. Bernards. And it just really, like the one we're looking at right now is a short-haired St. Bernard. Beethoven was a long-haired St. Bernard. And they keep jumping shots between the long-haired St. Bernard and the short-haired St. Bernard. And I like how the music is really playful just to show like, oh, a big, lovable, adorable St. Bernard that you know him here, but after he gets bit, like, that's all going to go away. That's all going to change. And you actually, in the book, do get to hear the inner workings of Cujo's mind as he's being affected by the rabies and as it's changing his personality and how he's trying to resist this evil nature that is taking over his mind. I want you to hear kind of the adorable, playful music that we got going. It's like playful on top, but there's like a uh, undercurrent of... A semi like undercurrent of like danger, like oh he's playful and adorable, but there's just like but be careful, things something could happen. We don't, yeah. There's two sides to every coin. One thing I don't like is we get so many shots of this dog's asshole, and it's disgusting. And it clearly looks like the dog's been neutered, but with with its ass in the air, it's sticking out from because his face is like shoved into this fallen log. It's so funny. Watch this mummy because he sticks his head in as a long-haired St. Bernard and then when he pulls the, the head out of the log hole again, it's the short-haired St. Bernard. Oh, the dog looks like, like, where'd the rabbit go? It was just here. I saw him go through this hole. And the thing is, from the outside, you can't even tell this is a cave because it's like a little, small little, like, bump with grass growing over the top of it. It almost looks like the opening to a vagina, almost. I know, that's disgusting, I'm sorry. But yeah, the rabbit, like, you can see a little bit of light and just these other bones of animals that have been eaten by these bats. Like, this, this rabbit is just, this what kicks everything off. You'd think that rabbit would be freaked out. Like, there's bones of probably other rabbits that have hid down there and died. Oh my gosh, what if the rabbit got bit by, like, a bat and suffered from rabies and couldn't get out of that cave again? Yeah, here we go. Again, with a long-haired St. Bernard. It keeps cutting back and forth and back and forth. This is not a real cave. It's something that was made for the set. And you just hear the dogs barking, echoing off the walls of this cave. Bats, of course, you know they're nocturnal. They got supersonic hearing. I can only imagine that's got to be annoying the hell out of them because they sleep during the day so they can hunt at night. Did you see a bat, like, open it, you know, its ears are up and it's hearing that noise and it's freaking out like, what the fuck? I'm sleeping. What the hell is this noise? Uh, how many dogs would probably put their head in that hole and, rawr, 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 and you just, and sound is just bouncing off the walls. It's like the queen bat is, like, alerting her posse to, like, Hey, wake up, everybody! There's an intruder! Ah! I mean, it's not like the dog's gonna be able to get into the hole other than its head is in there. Yeah, Kucha keeps pulling his hat and putting it back in and keeps barking, but then, like, five or six bats are floating around. And you see that that rabbit is like, well, I'm safe for now! Oh my gosh, what did I unleash? 
do see a close-up on a supposed bat, even though it's fake, biting a fake nose, because it's a close-up shot on the nose, just where the hair is, just, and, yeah, it's super, super fake, but I want to play this clip, because I, watching this, I, this is, I watch this every, every October, and just hearing this, you're going to hear this bark come up again later. Bats look so evil with their, you know, like, you can't see their eyes, but you can see the fangs in their mouth just like, <laughs> right? Yeah? <laughs> Quinn's like, what do you want from me? It's almost five o'clock, feed me. Right, Quinny? Yeah, right, baby. You got four minutes left. Can you wait four minutes? No? Okay. She doesn't know time. Oh yes, now Cujo has been infected with rabies. So, are bats just prone to have rabies? Like, they're just, it's like, as soon as they're born, it's like and rabies is flooding through the blood that runs through their veins. So, now we go to, this movie is actually told of two separate families. We have the Trentons, which we'll see here. Uh, the house, the front of the house is actually a facade. It's not real. It's just made for the movie. <laughs> this house is fucking huge. And Vic, who's the husband and father, and you have Donna, who's the wife and mother of Tad Trenton, who is about four years old. Vic is a, in advertising, and Donna is pretty much like a stay-at-home mom, home Home, 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 but homemaker, stay-at-home mom kind of thing going on. In the book, more you do go into. I think she might have been a substitute teacher at one point. You see, based on the novel by Stephen King, pop up. It looks like yeah, Tad, Tad's going to the bathroom. You don't see anything. You just see him kind of rub. He's like he's half asleep and he's like wiping his eyes as he's going finishing finishing up going to the bathroom. So there's a window right above where the toilet is, and then there's one right by the door as he leaves the bathroom. And he's going down a dark hallway. You see the door open to his bedroom, and there's a light in there. You also see a rocking horse, which I think this kid is a little too big for a rocking horse, but whatever. And apparently there's a couple steps leading into, like, the hallway. You go down, like, two steps, and it's his bedroom. Which, yeah, that'd be fun. Like, you're half asleep. Like, boom, boom. like, oh, yeah, there are two steps there. I forgot those were there. This <laughs> I like the color of his walls. It's like a blue sky with white clouds. And you do see a stuffed St. Bernard in, like, sitting on a toy box by the window. And then, of course, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with this door to the closet, but it does not want to stay shut. And it's not like he's got shit, like, crammed up against it where it's, like, pushing against the door. But I had the same problem as a kid when it came to closet doors. It's like, I would always face away from the closet door. And then it's like whenever I had a bad dream, I wake up and I was facing the closet door. I just, I just was not a fan of that. 
I see that this kid does, in fact, have a nightlight just to the right of the door. But when he turns off this one light, it takes, it turns off the little, like, balloon-shaped lamp. He's got, like, three different lamps in this bedroom. Because we see inside this darkened closet, there is a teddy bear that is sitting right front and center. So, yeah, I could see why, as a kid, if that door opened and you just saw this shadowy figure, it would look spooky. This is another thing. I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Because he's got, like, a little, like, um, a lamp. Just, like, one that would be, like, a desk lamp. I don't even know what the fuck that is supposed to be. It's not a... Is that a dresser? I guess it's supposed to be a dresser. But he goes... But the thing is... I've done this as a kid, where you turn off the light and you run really fast and jump into your bed because you're scared like something's going to reach out from underneath the bed and grab you. So it's like, yeah, and it's really funny. I told Jeremy because, like, I had a waterbed. Yes, I was do this at age 10, 11, probably into my teens. That's just something that was ingrained in me. Like, you want to get into bed really fast because, like, it's dark. You turn off the... There's no extra light. And, yeah, when he turns off that light, it turns off all the lights. Even that little night light that's to the left of... Or to the right of that closet. And he's got this adorable, like, balloon lamp thing right on his nightstand. I'm like, if you're that scared to sleep with that, have the lamp light... The, the balloon light on. So you have something there. Oh, this little lamp that's by his, um, maybe it's not a dresser. Maybe, I think it's like a bookshelf type of thing that it's like, but it's got like closed doors on it. But that lamp there, actually, it's shaped like a parrot. That's really cute. Oh, and I love how, like, the cover for the light switch that Tad's got his finger on, it's got like little balloons on it. That is so cute. I love the detail that someone put into this bedroom. This kid, I mean, what kid wouldn't envy, envy this huge-ass fucking bedroom? I mean, he's four years old, and oh my gosh, this bedroom is so cool. It's so huge! And he's got this, the same color as his walls, he's got this down comforter. Like, he, he almost shuts it off, and he starts running, and you realize, oh, I didn't shut the light off. But he does, does, and it's like complete darkness, even though there's like two or three windows in that bedroom. And I don't know if this is supposed to be from Tad's point of view, but it's like, in the dark, it makes the bed and where the light switches look like a mile away, almost. But, and he runs as soon as that lights off, and he like... I just jumps like it's a flying leap into bed. and that, But it's like, buddy, you're staring where the closet is. Turn the other way. That's what I do. And he's just freaking out. And then all of a sudden, the fucking closet door opens. So Vic's going to fix that fucking latch on that thing. He really, really does. Because he's like cowering and he's got the blankets pulled up right up to his face. And he's just like... <laughs> he's got like books or comics or something on the end of his bed and you hear this piano play out as that door opens it's just the the harping da-dun 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 and then all of a sudden you hear this mommy and it just 
Vic and Donna are just down the hall and they come running in. And he starts going, there's something in my closet, there's something in my closet. And right away, and I told Jeremy on this viewing of it, when she says, too much of the, too much of the tube, guys. And I don't know why, as a kid, I don't know why the fuck I thought this. When she said tube, I don't know why I didn't realize tube is another reference for TV. I thought she meant, like, too much of the tube is in, you're taking too much toothpaste. It's giving you, he's taking too much toothpaste. He's getting nightmares from the toothpaste. You say how to stop giving him too much toothpaste when he brushes teeth. So yeah, Vic and Donna rush into the room and Ted is like, Mommy, something's in my closet. And she she immediately, before she even goes to him, they're in the doorway. She's like, Oh, would you have a bad dream? And she goes and sits down on his bed, picks him up, and cradles him, you know, rocking him back and forth. Like, it's all over. It's This is the thing. It's almost like she's trying to just the saying that, and she'll do this for the first time in this scene here, where they're talking to him about the nightmare. Even Vic is like, well... Describe them to me. Describe the sounds. What was this this thing making? Because he's like, there's something in my closet. There's something in my closet. And the thing is, Donna immediately assumes, like, oh, too much of the junk food, too much of the tube, meaning the television. Too much of the tube, you, you guys. You really, you need to, what, really monitor what he's watching before bedtime. Like, oh, he had too much sugar before bed. That's what's causing the nightmares. Okay. And and, and Tana's just like, he's in there. Like, really? It's like, why don't you believe me? And Vic goes over there and he opens. There's a light switch just on the inside of that closet door. And we just see, you know, toys, clothes. It's not like anything is, it's not like he shoved everything into the closet and it's like pushing against the door and just spilling out all over the place onto his bedroom floor. It's not doing that. It's like there's something up with the latch. Yeah, and, and, yeah, as soon as Vic turns the light on him, he turns around and says, now, Tad, there is nothing in this house that's going to hurt you. Yeah, he's like, well, let's see here. Let's take stock of what's actually in the closet. I see, let's see, I see clothes. I see a pile of blankets on the chair. A lot of toys that haven't been put away because later on in the movie you'll see Vic going through Tad's closet and just putting stuff away. It's like I think there's even a dresser inside the closet for the clothes to go to which makes no sense since this room is humongous. And he Vic pulls out Ted's favorite and he refers to Vic refers to it as over the hill teddy bear which we all know over the hill means old but as a kid I'm thinking over the hill teddy bear meaning like oh over the hill who <laughs> and he says he grabs the bear and says your favorite over the hill teddy bear who would probably be a lot more happier and he closes the door and then Vic, you know, he turns, he's like, well, wait, no, I shut that door. And he presses on it till the lock actually sticks. He says, okay, this bear would be a lot more happier in bed with you. See, that's all that's in the closet. There's nothing else in there that's going to get you. 
Yeah, and, and even Vic goes down to sit next to Donna, who's cradling Tad, and he's like, that's it. That's all that's in the closet. There's nothing else in there. And I almost called him Danny. <laughs> Tad pleads with him, like, I saw him, really? And his dad's like, no, you saw him in your head, just in your dreams. And he says, Tad, there's no such... Tad, listen to me. There is no such thing as monsters. But before his dad says that, Ted starts saying, he's in the closet, really. And he, he starts describing him. It's like, usually, like when you just wake up from a dream, you usually can remember specific details. And he starts saying how he's got yellow eyes, and his mouth is about this long, and he pulls, Ted Cab pulls his hands kind of apart. And almost if you think about it, it almost sounds like he is, in fact, describing Cujo. He also says, and he has teeth, and they're curled like this as he kind of hooks his fingers. And Ted says, and he made sounds. And Donna says, well, what kind of sounds? And you see Ted kind of shrug. And Vic is like, well, come on, tell me, describe it to me. You know, what kind of sounds? And Ted starts going, <sighs> and Vic doesn't exactly help matters. He's like, well, oh, that scared me pretty good. I'm like, Vic! Really? You don't need to say that to the kid. Like, well, if Daddy's scared of this, I should definitely be scared. It's like, you're supposed to help calm the child. Not like, oh, yeah, that scared the heck out of me. Like, yeah, a child doesn't need to hear that you, a grown adult, would even be scared by what they're scared by. And Vic's like, well, he's all gone now, bud. And Ted's like, but he's in there, I saw him, really. It's like, he's pleading with his family, no, I really saw him in the closet. And Vic is just, oh my goodness. I mean, I get it, you want to, you know, put the kids' fears to rest and everything, because, you know, clearly they gotta, you know, he, Vic's gotta get up in the morning and go to work. He's like, I really just want to put this whole issue to bed. They've clearly, most likely had issues with this before. It's like, no, son, you just saw him in your head. Just in your dreams, nowhere else. And Vic says, see, Tad, there aren't any real... Tad, listen to me. There's no such thing as real monsters. Only in stories. There's no real monsters. Which, monsters really can equate to just about anything. A serial killer, an animal, um, an actual, like, monster that looks like a giant lizard. Just what, whatever your imagination can concoct. And Ted is just looking at Ted like, really? And Vic says, really? And even Donna's like, really? And she basically, yeah, she's like thinking, you know, get to bed. So she looks at Ted and says, all right, over, done with, gone, right? Like, we're done with this. It's over. It happened. We don't need to discuss it anymore. It's time to go to bed. And, and, and that actually, honestly, is something that she brings up again. It's like her way of saying it happened, it's over, we don't need to discuss it anymore, we're moving on, let's move on. Like, put it out of your head. This is the thing I remember distinctly my mom saying to me, good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. And as a kid, I didn't know what bed bugs were, I didn't know they were an actual thing. I thought they were like, like little bugs that'll get you if you don't like fall asleep right away or something like that. Uh, Donna and Tad both, you know, kiss and say goodnight to Tad, and before Vic leaves, because Donna's already turned the light out, 
Vic says, there aren't any monsters, Tad. And he goes to shut the door, but then he decides, well, I better leave it open just in case we have to go back in here later. Because that's the thing, you can't, once you're asleep, you cannot control your dreams. You just, you can't. And we close up on Tad as he says, except for the one in my closet, as he's clutching his teddy bear. Ted, no Ted is shaking his head like, no, nah, I don't believe you. Only in stories. <laughs> real monsters. Ted would let him have good dreams. Rakeman? away from it I would so it's the next morning and you see Tad's bed is empty he's not in it and you see a lot of stuff that is pushed up against the closet I really feel I don't understand why they couldn't have just had that lamp light like every lamp in that room the bedside balloon lamp and the little parrot lamp on his bed bookshelf, whatever that's supposed to be, turn off when it's like they're connected to the same outlet. Uh, he even looks like, it looks like he's got a Mickey Mouse 
alarm clock, like with a the typical wind up alarm clock with the ears on top. This kid was busy. He was busy. Um, look at all the type of furniture in his room, from the black rocking horse to a couple small little end tableish. He's even got the some stuffed animals that have everything's just been shoved up against the door to keep it closed. And now it's breakfast time. Uh, Tad is watching the little color TV on the that's on the kitchen counter while he's dumping spoonful after spoonful into his cereal that's already a sugar cereal anyway and of course his moving furniture in the middle of the night did not go unnoticed by his parents because they're just on the hall yeah he's watching the scooby-doo episodes from back in the what 60s 70s i believe Apparently, the Twinkles cereal has real fruit flavor. So, what Vic does for a living is, he, like I said, he's an ad executive. And he and his co-worker, Roger, he'll, who you'll learn about in a little bit, invented this character called The Professor, who looks like a semi Bill Nye Mr. Rogers clone with the blazer and the bow tie and he takes a bite of cereal. It's like he's in a classroom. So it's almost like Mr. Rogers, Bill Nye, and Mr. Feeney all thrown into one person. And he's in a, cl a classroom setting sitting on a desk and he's scooping cereal, looks into the camera and says, nope. Nothing wrong here, which is the stupidest catchphrase ever, which you know if there's a problem with that cereal, they are going to jump on that catchphrase. So uh, Vic is the one who brings it up about, you know, it looks like someone was moving furniture. So clearly they probably didn't hear anything, but they saw like all of his furniture in his bedroom, except for his bed, has been pushed up against that door. And Donna is at the stove making breakfast. And Vic's like, yeah, sounds like someone's moving some furniture around last night in your bedroom. Who was that? Do you have any idea, Tad? And Tad, it just... Eyes not even leaving the little TV screams like, nope, don't know. Of course, Vic is smiling like, uh-huh, yeah. Hey, Donna, do you know who it was? And Donna's like, well, it wasn't me. And Vic says, wasn't me either. And Ted says, wasn't me. And then there's a knock at the door. It's Steve Kemp, who is a carpenter, carpenter who's been doing work for the Trentons. I guess... There's another rocking horse. How many rocking horses does this child need? He's four. You'd think at that point he would have moved out of the rocking horse phase. But then again, this is 1983. This is not 2021 where a four-year-old probably would have a tablet thrown in his lap and be completely occupied by screen time. And Steve also has been working on their a table for them. <laughs> oh, one of the nicknames that Steve has for Tad is Tadpole, which not really surprised there. That I don't know any other name you could put along any other type of word that you could put along T 
Tad that isn't, I mean, Tadpole. I don't know. But yeah, he's got another fucking rocking horse. This kid does not need another damn rocking horse. And of course, Steve's like, hey, Mr. Trenton, Mrs. Trenton, Donna, who's still at the stove, just kind of looks over his shoulder like, hi, morning. And the thing is that Steve keeps it professional. You would not know they have that Donna and Steve have any type of a relationship going on by how formal they are with each other in front of Vic. <laughs> so Vic's like, oh, Donna, do we have a check for Steve so we can pay him for that? And Steve's like, well, I'm not still working on your table, so why don't you wait until I bring that back and you can just, you know, put the money for the rocking horse and the table just into one check. I mean, makes sense. Just, like, hold off, and that way you're just writing one check instead of two. And then, of course, I don't know where Vic ran off to, but <laughs> Steve is, is, like, hanging out in that little kitchen window-ish area. Like, oh, well, I can't stay for a cup of coffee anyway. And Donna's like, oh, I'm sorry, would you like a cup of coffee? And he's like, no, I'm just joking. Oh my god, I had never noticed this before in her body language, but when Steve asks for a cup of coffee, it's just like Donna is so frustrated. And over the years and over the times I've seen this, like I said, I watch this movie every October, it looks like she's frustrated, like, oh, don't, mm, enough with the formalities, but then again... She puts on a bright, smiley face, like, well, I have to be the host, you know, at least offer since he asked, since my husband's here. Otherwise, she would have said, you know what, you can go. You dropped off the horse. You, there's no reason for you to be here anymore. But, uh, yeah, I just never noticed that. Just a hunch in her shoulders, like, the frustrated, because uh, she's, the back of her, her is just, like, and then she puts on a smile on her face like, oh yeah, that's right, my husband's in the room. So Vic tries to bring Steve into this whole thing like, hey, Tad, maybe it was Mr. Kemp who was moving furniture around. And Steve's like, oh boy, what did I do now? And this is where Tad brings up the monster. No, the monster did it. And Steve's like, monster? What are you talking about? And Vic's like, no, Tad, remember we talked about this last night? There are no monsters. <laughs> like, what did we talk about? Like, there are no such things as monsters. <laughs> and Donna corrects Tad and says, there aren't anything such things as monsters. And Tad's like, in the daytime anyway. Like, hello. They only appear at night in the dark. <laughs> Donna's got to correct his grammar. That Vic is just after Tad says, in the daytime, anyway. It's like he's trying to be a little smart ass about it. And they just like, oh, our son, he's so funny. So, of course, Vic goes over there. He's like, oh, I'll show you what a monster would do in the, in the daytime. And he grips, scoops up Tad, puts him on his lap, and goes to grab his knee. And then Vic's commercial comes on. Like, Daddy, Daddy, look, it's your commercial. So, yeah, it's like, I know a lot about cereal. Because I am the sharp cereal professor. So he starts, the professor starts listing the cereals. Sharp cereals. Twinkles, Cocoa Bears, Brand 16. Of course, Tad lets Steve know, who probably already fucking knows. My daddy invented that. He made them all up. And Steve, kind of playing dumb, is like, 
made what up? And Tad says, the professor. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the professor says, and they're good for you. And it says red raspberry zingers, which raspberry zingers, I know those. Those are like a hostess. It's almost like a Twinkie cake, but with red dye and coconut shavings on top. I love, Jeremy's not a fan of coconut, but I love it. I love the raspberry zingers. I think they're really, really good. Yeah, so it mentions that Vic is a hell of a tennis player. And Steve's like, hey, I'm ready for a rematch anytime you are. Gosh, here's another thing. That, no, watching this again, just little things. When I cover movies for the podcast, even though I've seen them a handful of times, I'm catching things I never really notice. I think she's handing him, like, a vitamin because she reaches across the tent and thinking, what is she doing? And she mouths, like, take it. Like, I'm guessing that's, like, a Flintstones vitamin or something. They didn't have gummy vitamins back then, which I think... Gummy vitamins aren't bad. They really aren't, but you gotta, the ones for adults, it's like, they say that you gotta chew it, like, chew it slowly so as it absorbs into your body, I guess. You don't, like, chew it a couple times and swallow it because it's not gonna absorb it or whatever. I take one-a-day women's, by the way, so I'm covered. Oh, yeah, Steve's up for a rematch because apparently Vic is a hell of a tennis player <laughs> and then he's like does a double uh finger gun to tad and calls him tad bowl and ducks out again we get the nope nothing wrong here from the sharp professor who's a angling the small cereal bowl with the spoon inside of it towards the audience like oh you can see the texture of the cereal see it still stays crunchy in milk I gotta ask, does Steve really suck at tennis, or is it the fact that he's fucking Vic's wife, and he's losing on purpose, like, I'm making it up to him, because, uh, I'm fucking his wife, so I gotta make this guy probably who, maybe Vic really isn't as good as he thinks, and Steve's losing on purpose, I don't know. Because Stephen's like, are you kidding me? I'm a masochist. I, I, I love getting my ass handed to me all the time. There's a bench there, like um, a picnic table, just off to the side. And Steve's sitting down. He's wearing the shortest fucking white shorts a human being could ever wear. <laughs> and Vic's like, oh, what? You're not getting tired of this, are you? And Steve plays it off like, what, are you kidding me? I love getting my ass handed to me every week. I mean, I'm a masochist. And Vic's like, oh, okay, uh, whatever turns you on, I guess. Bye. And jump cut to Steve's place, which looks like, it doesn't even look like a house. It's just a, it's a room that's just got shit on it. It looks like there's a small table Oh, one of those old, like, built-in stereotype things. It looks like he's probably got, like, porno mags on or carpenter magazines or something just kind of splayed across. And he's holding a trumpet, so Steve apparently is a musician. 
And another bit of trivia, I did have a VHS, not the one that was taped off TV that somehow we acquired when I was 11. No, I'm talking about when I was, oh gosh, I think it was right around the time Jeremy and I started dating, so I was like 21, 22, and... I picked it up at, like, a Kmart for, like, six bucks or something, maybe nine dollars, uh, the VHS copy of Cujo, and I put it in, and mind you, I had seen, by the time I'd, I'd seen it, like, about, like, a hundred times, and I come across this scene, and it's even here in the, in the, not in the trivia, but it's in alternate, an alternate version of the movie. So this movie actually also I didn't I don't know I don't think I mentioned it, but this movie was released August 12th, 1983. That's 12 days from my very first birthday. Also, it was filmed in Santa Rosa, California and Mendocino, California and also Utah. But here it says alternate versions. Most DVD prints are missing a Osup shot of Donna's face as she climaxes during a sex scene with Steve. The scene was intact in video versions, and that is the scene I had come across. And mind you, I the scene comes up, and I'm like, the fuck? What is this? It's like, what is this scene that was never ever? And the thing is, the Cujo movie that was on the Harry and the Henderson tape that was taped off of like HBO, whoever. I don't know whose tape it originally was, but it was taped off of HBO. And I just, I come across the scene as an adult, like, the fuck? Because she's like, you don't see Steve. You just see Donna's face as she's climaxing slash orgasming. And it looks like it's the middle of the afternoon, so you know her husband's at work, and she's, and you know that Tad is probably at preschool or date, um, some type of thing. So, she's fucking Steve on his skank-ass, cum-stained mattress. So gross. And then, apparently she fell asleep, because I guess, you know, you're worn out after sex. So, you're like, well, I'm sleepy. I'm gonna take a nap. So, Steve's waking her up. Probably she's like, wake me up at 2.30. I gotta pick up Tad and then do some errands. So it's like she's having a fucking nooner. How many times a week she's doing this? I don't know. <laughs> it's like she must have been in a deep fucking sleep because he like she jolts up, and then he chuckles afterwards because he played the trombone and it woke her up. So she gets up. She's got her underwear at wear in hand, and she's also. I gotta say the time of the eighty eighties and stuff. Some fashions. I mean, like I said, it was an. I was born in 82, but this fashion of the ruffle, it's like a burgundy red top. I'm not even going to call it a shirt. It's a top that goes like past her thighs and it's got a ruffled collar and it's got like kind of like puffed up sleeves and she's carrying her underwear and you see as she's looking in the mirror as she's putting her feet through her underwear. And then we, oh, this is another thing I didn't notice. There's a, it looks like a Miller Lite, like, wall decal that's like a nightlight almost that's lit up. 
It looks like it's got a small little kitchenette off to the side of the bedroom. So I don't know whether this is maybe just like an apartment, small little apartment that he's renting. And he's got, it looks like he's, he brings his work home with him, clearly, because there's a table, there's a chair, there's just woodworking stuff all over the fucking place. <laughs> so much sheen of sweat on the upper lip. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and again, what, this is supposed to be summer, so I'm sure there's no fucking air conditioning. And you know, when you do have sets, usually, especially if... Your <laughs> really whatevering. It's like you're gonna perspire. You're basically working out. You're gonna you're you're gonna sweat. Your body's gonna give off that moisture. We see Donna look in the mirror and it's just kind of wondering, like, what is she thinking? The book, a lot of it has to deal with the fact that Donna's like in her thirties and the fear of growing old. So she's fucking Steve, who maybe he's a smidge younger than her. I don't know, but it's just like in her mind, like this is keeping me feeling. Is that why those older women who are cougars that are in their 40s go after 20 something year olds because it makes them feel young? Or the older men that are like in their 50s and they're going after like 28 year olds? Like, oh, Dating someone younger makes me feel young. No, it makes you look like a fucking creep. And it makes you look desperate. It's like you're chasing after a lost dream that you were never meant to have. So this is going to be the saddest family dinner in, in humanity that I've ever seen displayed on screen. It's just Donna um, um, on one side of the table, and then Vic's on the other side, and then you have Tad. No conversation. Tad is not telling them about how he did at school, or, I mean, he's four. He's, you know, he's in preschool, so I don't But it's just, it's a sad dinner, and Tad gets up from the table, and he goes to turn the TV on, which I'm guessing is on the news, and Donna immediately's like, no, no, it's dinner, turn it off. And Tad actually looks at his dad, and Vic says, no, you need to turn it off. And poor Tad just dejected, just goes and slides back into his chair, like, and I'm thinking, fucking hell. And then Vic brings up, well, this marriage is definitely running on a conversation. Maybe we should talk about having another baby. I'm thinking, what the fuck? Your four-year-old is right there. You want to have that conversation? Why don't you table it till the, you're in the bedroom? He doesn't need to hear that. You think adding another kid is going to give you conversation at the dinner table? But then again, I mean, he works in advertising and whatnot and shit, and she's, like, running errands and shit during the day. Clearly, this is just um, a... So apparently nothing interesting happens during the day enough that they want to share. It's not like Donna's like, oh, by the way, yeah, I ran, got some errands done. Oh, I uh, fucked Steve Kemp. Oh, and then I picked up Tad from preschool. <laughs> yeah. Are they both drinking water or wine? What the hell are they? Is that bread or meatloaf? You know, uh, Ugh. 
Just anything to break up the monotony of silence. Whose fault is that? Maybe we should talk about having another baby. Maybe you should table that for another time. thought over the years of viewing this movie Ted decides you know to create his own entertainment or conversation starter he gets out of his chair and he does a little I didn't know what that was it's the theme to Jaws because he's like running his four little fingers along the edge of the table where you see them and doing the Jaws like da-dun da-dun and then he's like, I got you! And he grabs Vic's arm and he starts giggling. And Vic lets himself be pulled onto the floor. And of course, Donna's like, Watch my chair! Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Vic drives a Jaguar. So they got a Jaguar and Donna drives the piece of shit Pinto. And I guess there's something going on with the wheel or something of this Jaguar. So he stops in at this fucking auto mechanic place looks like a mom-and-pop place of this town it's not like you're taking it to a honda dealership or a toyota dealership or whatever the hell model would make a jaguar belongs to don't know but there's only one person running like actually working on the cars because vic gets parks his car gets out and goes over to the guy and says, hey, I got a problem with my front wheel. Do you think you could look at it? And the guy just, who's underneath, you know, a car and working on it, says, just leave it next to the Datsun, leave the keys in it. And Vic has the nerve to fucking say, well, I was kind of hoping I could wait for it, you know, today. And the guy slides out from under the car, rolls his eyes, and says, you're kidding me, right? I'm like, do you not see these five other fucking cars sitting here? You think I'm going to take priority because you are you got a fucking Jaguar? Go fuck yourself. Vic, who the hell do you think you are? Those people probably all made appointments. And he's like, well, I'm on my lunch break. I think I'll just drive my car to have it looked at. That's not how it fucking works. You make a fucking appointment. You get your ass down there. You sit in the fucking waiting area. Oh, my freaking gosh. Let me tell you. I took my car to have an oil change. Whew. First oil change since we moved down here. We've been down here a year. Make the appointment, go in, whatever. Here's my keys. You know, I'm going to sit in the waiting area. And normally you think, it, you know, when I went early enough where, you know, and I went during, you know, it was my day off. So I'm like, okay, I went early enough and whatnot. And I'm sitting there. It's going, and I'm like, well, how long do you think? They're like, oh, probably about, you know, hour, hour and a half. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever. Boring on an hour and a half to two hours. I'm like, what's going on with my car? And they're like, oh, yeah, they're just now getting to it. I'm like, the fuck? I made my appointment for this time. Whatever, whatever. So then it's bordering on two and a half hours, and I'm getting royally fucking pissed. 
Like, the fuck? I'm never bringing my car back here. This is bullshit. I just came in for a fucking oil change. And then, I am not having, I know, I know I sound like a fucking cretin, but I'm like, no oil change in history needs to take three fucking hours. And I guess apparently there was a mix-up with my car and another car. Like, most likely it probably got done earlier and they forgot about it. And I, I, I just, I, I was saying I'm not coming here again for a while. This is ridiculous. There's no reason for it to take this long. And, of course, the guy's like, and I'm like, okay, how much do I owe? He's like, don't worry, I took care of it. I'm like, I know it makes me sound like a fucking creep, but I'm like, what the fuck? No oil change in history takes three hours. Ah, anyway, anyway, that's my fucking rant. So... Vic is like, oh, fuck this shit then. Uh, he goes to his car, and then, of course, the male person is the one who lets him know, like, hey, Joe Camber will do the job for you, and he, he'll he do a good job, and he won't rob you blind. Kind of like, because <laughs> even as an 11-year-old, I didn't know what the whole that, that, because he's like, just take I-17, the, the street here, take that six or seven miles out of town, You'll see Camber's mailbox. You can't miss it. It's out in the fucking boondocks. And then the mailman points, like he's pointing to that auto mechanic in there that Vic just saw. He points, and then he does the thumbs down. It wasn't until I was an adult that I'm like, oh, basically he's saying this guy fucking sucks and he overcharges. Go to this guy out in the boonies. He's going to do a damn good job, and he's not going to overcharge you. <laughs> so I'm gonna play this fucking clip. It just irritates me that Vic just thinks like, oh, well I got a Jaguar and I make good money, so I'm I think that you can just stop what you're doing, stop working on this car, and just immediately start working on mine. Fuck off. <laughs> What's this body shop? It's got a Pepsi Cola sign on it. Excuse me. Listen, I have a problem with my front wheel. I wonder if you can take a look at it. Park it next to the Datsun. Leave the keys in it. Well, I was kind of hoping I could wait for it today. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Hell no. You're kidding. No. See you later. No. <laughs> Whatever, man. You think you got top priority because you chose a jag? Joe Camber. Do a real good job and he won't rob you blind. <laughs> this guy sets off everything. Sets everything Where's in motion. Joe you take 117 here straight out of town, six mile give or take. All the way out to the end, you'll see Campbell's mailbox. Can't miss it. Yeah, that guy fucking sucks, so take Thanks. my advice. Go to this other dude. See you later, Harry. Oh, that main accent. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious sake, I swear. Now the Trentons are going to the Cambers, so we're going to meet Joe Camber and family. And Cujo, the, na the dog who the film is named after. Oh! So <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. It's just funny. When I watch this with Jeremy, it's like, why do they all go with him? And by all, I mean Donna and Tad. And Jeremy's car looked at. I'm like, because I guess back in the day, that's just what you did. Like, oh, you're going to get your car checked out. Oh, you're running the grocery store. Hey, can I come with you? Just for, you know, something to do. <laughs> that's what you did. You turned any little errand into a family outing. Like, may as well. Don't you just love the tinted sunglasses of the 80s? Vicks are atrocious as fuck. It's got that, like, brownish, reddish tint that is just right with the 80s. Oh, my. And, the, you know, it's a wide open yard. It's got, like, a bunch of old-ass vehicles parked that look like they haven't run in a fucking lifetime. Like, just before he even gets to, because the property is lined with a fence that goes around it, just some old-ass ramble fence, but there's at least three vehicles that are right outside that look like they're just there, that have not run. It's almost like he got them from a junkyard, so that way he can use whatever parts for, you know, other, you know, vehicles that come in and whatnot. There's also a basketball hoop attached to a pole in the middle of the yard that's got a light on top, which you'll notice that later. So many fucking vehicles that look like they don't run, but there's a station wagon there that actually does belong to the, the Cambers. <laughs> First up of the Cambers that we meet is Brett. He's probably about maybe 11 or 12 years old. He's knocking around a baseball against the side of the barn that contains his dad's auto mechanic shop that he works on. Vic gets out and he's like, hey, how's it going? And Brett doesn't even say anything. Hey, Pop, you got a customer out here, basically. But you hear him, Joe Camber, before you see him, you hear, like, he's, like, pressing, like, an accelerator or something down on whatever he's working on in there. And then, of course, Tad, this is back before four-year-olds would be in booster seats or booster whatever you call them nowadays. Because he's just hanging in the back, like, because it's a Jaguar, you know, he's, Kind of got a hand on either of the headrests of his the driver's seat and passenger seat, and he's just kind of sitting upward. No way in fuck would you get allowed, or uh, you would not be allowed to do that. That kid would have to be in one of those boosters till they're like, what, four foot tall or more, I guess? I don't know what the cutoff age is or the height. Apparently, Vic, and I'm going to read the, um, part in the book with the whole meetup and whatnot. Because Vic says, you know, I had a tough time finding this place. Well, didn't the guy say just take this road like six or seven fucking miles? Granted, this is 83. You didn't have fucking GPS that's going to tell you how to get there. Like, let me plug in the Camber's address. Okay. <coughs> Joe Camber, a man of a few words. He's like, I'm Victor Trenton. Uh, you're Joe Camber, right? And they shake hands. Like, oh, yeah. And, of course, Donna sees it to herself, like, eh, I'm going to wander around the property. 
And then we come on Charity Camber, who is Joe's wife, Brett's mother. And she, ever the hostess, such a sweetheart of a lady. We see her de-plucking a chicken in a white porcelain type, you know, the kind of white, like, bowl thing that's got, like, the black specks on it. And she stands up in surprise to see Donna standing there. And Charity, like I said, ever the hostess, she's like, oh, you, you folks want anything to drink? Look at her hands. They're covered in fucking blood. Just like that uh, little uh, crock pot thing is with that de-feathered chicken. That's their dinner, by the way. But, like, yo, you folks want anything uh, to drink? And, you know, everyone's got a thick-ass Maine accent except for Donna and Dad and Vic. Because I, I don't think they're originally from Maine. But the camera sure as fuck are. Well, Brett doesn't have an accent. But anyway, anyway. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, if I were Donna and I saw somebody with bloodied hands after de-plucking a chicken or whatever she's doing and offered me a drink, I most likely would probably decline. Just like, I don't know. And, and Donna, exactly. She's like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. That, thank you, though. Thank you. Yeah, we kind of, as the camera kind of takes us around this big-ass tree trunk, we see... Charity sitting in a chair hunched over this other chair that's holding this pot and she's holding like the feet of the chicken and you just see feathers just white feathers just all over the ground in front of her. I mean Charity honestly looks like straight up Little House on the Prairie with the apron and all that and you know, they're they're in the country. You know, I grew up on, in the country. And Donna is more, you know, they grew up in, in the city. Vic's got money and stuff. And there's definitely a class difference here. Of Donna would probably just go to a supermarket and just buy chicken if she wanted to make it for dinner. Where Charity, they have a rooster or a chicken or whatever. They kill it. And she's going to just straight up pluck all the feathers off of it. That's her, uh, yeah. <laughs> and definitely, I mean, you see that Donna is more, you know, put together as far as her clothing choices, makeup, hair. Whereas, Charity really does not look like she has any makeup or anything whatsoever. She is clearly, she she's a homebody. She, she also, I believe, is a stay-at-home mom, just like Donna is in a way, but the class difference between the Cambers and the Trentons are so vastly different. You'd think one lived on Mars and one lived on Venus. They're so vastly different. I mean, the Cambers live in a ramshackle farmhouse, two-story farmhouse, and just everything just looks so fucking run down, whereas the Trentons... I mean, you've seen their fucking house if you've seen this movie. It is fucking huge. I'm sure there's a section of their house they haven't even been to yet. It's that big. I was telling Jeremy, even though he says I was kind of just like, why are you just making stuff, you know, about not a big deal about nothing? But E.T. was made in 82. And Dio Wallace was, you know, she played the mom in that. And in this, in 83. And her hairstyle just seems more 
in E.T. it was more, you know, it, it was short, but it was, you know, more um, put together as far as styled and shaped. This is more like it's hair like you've cut short after being long and it's starting to grow out in different directions. Like she's almost got little mini sideburn dealies going on on the side of her ears and just the hair is just... I mean, it's not going to matter later when um, they're stuck in that car and you just sweat is just makes the hair just, uh, I can't, mm, I would not be able to do that. I mean, I, you know, like on The Walking Dead and he's like, when's the last time someone like washed their hair? I could not deal with that. I have to wash my hair every damn night because I mean, I just, I can't deal with the oil in my hair. It's just, ugh, drives me nuts. Again with the puffed sleeve shirts, Donna. Again with the uh, upper sweat stash. So here we see Cujo. We have not seen him since he got bit by that bat. And we are seeing short-haired Cujo, not long-haired Cujo. And Tad, of course, didn't bring any toys along or anything, but he's playing in the dirt like probably any kid of the 80s and 90s would do at that age. When you don't have other toys to play with. You, Cujo's a big dog. He's a Saint Bernard. No, he's not the size of a Great Dane or a Wolfhound or anything like that, but he's still a big dog. And she doesn't know anything about this dog, whether he's sweet or aggressive or mean or doesn't like it. She knows nothing of that. And of course, the first thing she's like, Vic! And she runs to Tad as Cujo lumbers into the yard. And Vic is just kind of looking like, what's the problem? What's the deal? And Donna, like, runs and scoops up Tad, who's nowhere near Cujo. Like, get away from that dog. You don't know that dog. And Brett immediately is like, oh, man, don't worry about it. He likes kids. Cujo's good with kids. See, you wouldn't hurt him. And for him, he's like, come on, Cujo. Come on, boy. Come on, Cujo. It's like just showing, like, he's friendly. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> And even Vic's like, honey, it'll be fine. It'll be all right. And even Joe Camper's like, hey, why don't you get in the car and I want to listen to the wheel to see what kind of noise it's making so that way I can diagnose the problem. And even Joe's like, don't worry, Mr. Camber and Mrs. Or Mr. Trenton and Mrs. Trenton, your boy will be just fine. And <laughs> I'm just thinking of Joe Camber, when he comes out, he's wearing one of those mechanic jumpsuits. Grace just covering it and his hands. And I'm just thinking of Vic's jag. He you know that he's gonna take that through a car wash, or he's gonna he's gonna like have to like wipe the seats down with armor all. Like get these damn grease spots off this night final. <laughs> the music as Cujo's approaching just sounds like ominous, like and just Ted standing up and seeing Cujo as he's like dusting off his dirty hands. Ugh. Yeah, the way she's like Vic and Vic turns and looks like what's the problem? What's going on? And she scoops up to him and says, Get going. Don't don't be near that dog. You don't know that dog. He wasn't anywhere near him and the dog didn't approach him. My goodness. I get it. I don't have kids. I probably would have reacted like, don't touch that dog. You don't know where that dog has been. You don't know if he's friendly or aggressive. The dog's tail's wagging. And Brett is like, come on, Cujo. Come on, boy. Like, here, let me show you how. He jumps right into it. Like, 
my gosh, I want this lady thinking my dog is unfriendly. Come on, boy! Yeah, don't worry about it, ma'am. Cujo won't hurt him. He likes kids. Likes to eat them. <laughs> I'm kidding! <laughs> There's a truck back there! That, I don't know whether that's someone that, that's dropped off a vehicle that's waiting to be worked on. I have, and there's a tractor back there, I think. Yeah, it's like, he's safe. And Joe Camper comes out, and he's like, hey, run me down the hill and back. I want to have a listen to the wheel. See what's going on. I want to have a listen to her, as in uh, <laughs> Joe Camper. <laughs> the way that he, he talks about cars, you know, I want to have a listen to her, you know, your car. Like, this isn't Christine. Oh, my God. Oh, my. There's that movie. I don't know. Is that a book, too, called Cat's Eye by Stephen King? But in the beginning, it's got this, like, tiger-striped cat and Cujo the dog and also a cameo from Christine the car. Yeah, it's just weird. It's on YouTube. You can even search, like, Cat's Eye, Cujo, Christine, and that clip will come up. Donna is like holding Dad, and she's like, "Vic, are you she's like? Don't leave me here." And he's like, "Oh, it's all right, honey. It's okay." I'm like, damn it, I should have just left you home. Why the fuck did I bring you? <laughs> Nothing for them to do. What if he had started working on the vehicle? What are they gonna do? Hang out there for three hours? There's, it's not like there's a way to, like, hey, come on into my living room. I'll turn on some cartoons for your son. Or, hey, here, uh, wash and sanitize my hands. I can fix you some iced tea or lemonade or something. Like, the fuck? That's one of those things where it's like, okay, honey, follow me out here. We'll drop the vehicle off. We'll, that way you can, you know, take me home so we don't got to sit there at some stranger's house. And then they can give me a call when the car's done. Something like that, you know? Right, Quinn? Meow yawn. You did a meow yawn? What? Can't you get down from that table? You jumped up there, baby. You can do it. You're like seeing all this stuff I pulled off the table. You can do it, baby. You can get down off that table. Right? I gotta trim your nails again, don't I? Alright. <laughs> Crazy kitty. Joe cannot wait to slide into the seat there of that Jag. Like, this is the closest I'll ever get to a Jag. He's like, don't worry, Mr. Trenton, your boy will be, be, be alright. Or, I can't do a main accent to save my ass, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it, it's just, his thing mechanics jumpsuit is just covered in grease. His face is covered in grease. Bleh. So, what is Donna to do? Like, alright, I guess. The dog doesn't look like it's going to eat you, but I don't know. So, she sets him down, like, gently. Like, she takes Ted's hand and gently glides it, guides it over to Cujo's face. And, of course... Brett's there to kind of, you know, intervene on the whole thing, just make sure everything goes great and copacetic. Like, Cujo, his name's Cujo. And Ted's like, what kind of dog is he? Hey, he's a St. Bernard. I'm like, he's a really big dog. And Vic says, yeah, he's a, or not Vic, uh, Brett. Sorry, Brett is the one who says, yeah, he's a St. Bernard. He's pretty smart. Yeah, smart enough, but not smart enough not to get bit. <laughs> Because Donna sees this giant, like, 
bite that is like like tripled in size just by the side of the like where the hair meets the nose on the muzzle and she just like what's up with that bite did your dog get bit what happened is he vaccinated yeah it's like in the country it's like you know you would have to have i mean i'll rabies i thought there's even like a rabies like a vaccine that goes along with the dog's tags to make sure like oh the tag says he's been vaccinated he's got his rabies shot he's good because <laughs> quinnie got hers last year her rabies shot even though she's strictly indoor cat so she doesn't need hers for at least another two years right girl that's right let's pat him right on the nose where that sore is ew like, avoid the sore on his nose. Just pat him on the head. Cujo, his name's Cujo. And Chad's like, Cujo, how you doing, Cujo? And the dog licks his face. Yeah, really? I mean, that bite on his nose is just literally tripled in size. It looks infected. I'm fine in this place. How are you? My name is uh, Victor Trent. You're Mr. Camber, right? Yeah. Well, who else would he be? You saw Camber on the mailbox, didn't you? I debone the hell out of that, too. <laughs> debone. Deplop. Feather. Defeather. Afternoon. Folks, want anything to drink? Did she have to offer that to all no, the customers? No, thanks. Thanks. Okay, I'll just go back to. Uh, I'm gonna take this chicken back inside. He's naked. <coughs> and that's just ominous as the dog comes up, like. So now I'm going to read from the book, of course, this whole meeting of the Trentons and the Cambers, the whole meeting Cujo and just how it's a little bit different. There's a little more to it. Of course, it is a book. There's a, more, a little more to this scene. 
Vic had called Camber, and one day in July, a much cooler July than the one which would follow a year later. Oh, wow. Okay, wait a minute. So, what this is saying is, like, the whole thing with Donna's Pinto and whatnot takes place a year later the following July? Okay. <laughs> he and Donna and Tad had driven out to the Camber's place together. It was really far out. Twice, Vic had to stop and ask directions. That's right, because he's like, had a tough time finding this place. <laughs> well, <laughs> Google Maps didn't exist. <laughs> and it was then that he began to call those farthest reaches of the township East Galoshes Corners. He pulled into the, to the camber door, or door yard, the back wheel clunking louder than ever, Tad, then three, was sitting on Donna Trenton's lap, laughing up at her. A ride in Daddy's no-top always put him in a fine mood, and Donna was feeling pretty fine herself. A boy of eight or nine was standing in the yard, hitting... Okay, because the boy in the movie looks like he's 12 or 13, but whatever. Okay. and It's just interesting seeing the book here and how... The ages are a little different. Okay. A boy of eight or nine was standing in the yard hitting an old baseball with an even older baseball bat. The ball would travel through the air, strike the side of the barn, which Vic assumed was also Mr. Camber's garage, then roll most of the way back. Hi, the boy said. Are you Mr. Trenton? That's right, Vic said. I'll get my dad, the boy said, and went into the barn. The three Trentons got out, and Vic walked around in the back of his jag and squatted by the bad wheel. Not feeling very confident. Perhaps he should have tried to nurse the car into Portland after all. The situation out here didn't look very promising. Camber didn't even have a sign out front. Well, he works out of his fucking garage, Vic. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> his meditations were broken by Donna, calling his name nervously, and then... Oh my god, Vic! He got up quickly and saw a huge dog emerging from the barn. For one absurd moment, he wondered if it really was a dog or maybe some strange and ugly species of pony. Then as the dog petted out of the shadows of the barn's mouth, he saw its sad eyes and realized it was a St. Bernard. Donna had impulsively snatched up Tad and retreated toward the hood of the jag, but Tad was struggling impatiently in her arms, trying to get down. Want to see the doggy, Mom? Want to see the doggy? Donna cast a gl nervous glance at Vic, who shrugged, also uneasy. Then the boy came up, came back, and ruffled the dog's head as he approached Vic. The dog wagged a tail that was absolutely huge, and Tad redoubled r his struggles. You can let him down, ma'am, the boy said politely. Cujo likes kids. He won't hurt him. And then to, to Vic. My dad's coming right out. He's washing his hands. All right, Vic said. That's one hell of a big dog, son. Are you sure he's safe? He's safe, the boy agreed. But Vic found himself moving up beside his wife as his son, incredibly small, toddled toward the dog. Cujo stood with his head cocked, that great brush of a tail waving slowly back and forth. Forth. Vic, Donna began. It's all right, Vic said, thinking, I hope. <laughs> the dog looked big enough to swallow the tatter. Yeah, that is a nickname that they called Tad. Tatter. <laughs> the dog looked big enough to swallow the tatter in a single bite. 
Ted stopped for a moment, apparently doubtful. He and the dog looked at each other. Doggy? Ted said. Cujo, Camber's boy said, walking over to Ted. His name's Cujo. Cujo, Ted said, and the dog came to him and began to lick his face in great good-natured sloppery swipes at Ted, giggling and trying to fend him off. He turned back to his mother and father, laughing the way he did when one of them was tickling him. He took a step toward them, and his feet tangled in each other. He fell, he fell down. Suddenly, dog was, the dog was moving toward him, over him, and Vic, who had his arm around Donna's waist, felt his wife's, wife's gasp as, as well as heard it. He started to move forward then, and then stopped. Cujo's teeth had clamped on the back of, the, of Tad's Spider-Man t-shirt. He pulled the boy up. For a moment, Tad looked like a kitten, a kitten in its mother's mouth and set the boy on his feet. Tad ran back to his mother and father. Like the doggy! Mom, Dad, I like the doggy! Camber's boy was watching this with mild amusement, his hands stuffed into the pockets of his jeans. Sure, it's a great dog, Vic said. He was amused, but his heart was still beating fast. For just one moment, he had really believed that the dog was going to bite off Tad's head like a lollipop. It's a St. Bernard, Tad, he said. St. Bernard? Tad cried and ran back to Cujo, who was now sitting outside the mouth of the barn like a small mountain. Cujo! Cujo! Ted, Donna tensed beside Vic again. Oh, Vic, do you think... But now Tad was with Cujo again, first hugging him extravagantly and then looking closely at his face. With Cujo sitting down, his tail thumping on the ground, his tongue lolling out pinkly. Tad could almost look in the dog's eyes by standing on tiptoe. I think they're fine, Vic said. Tad had now put one of his small hands into Cujo's mouth and was peering in like the world's smallest dentist. That gave Vic another uneasy moment, but then Tad was running back to them again. Doggy's got teeth, he told Vic. Yes, lots of teeth, Vic said. He turned to the boy, meaning to ask him where he had come up with that name, but then Joe Camber was coming out of the barn, wiping his hands on a piece of waste so he could shake without getting Vic greasy. Vic was pleasantly surprised to find that Camber knew exactly what he was doing. He listened carefully to the, to, to the clunking sound as he and Vic drove down the, to the house at the bottom of the hill and then back up to Camber's place. Wheel Baron's going. You're lucky it ain't froze up on you already. Can you fix it? Vic asked. Oh, I uh, fix it right now if you don't mind hanging around for a couple hours. That'd be all right, I guess. Because who wants to fucking sit there for a couple hours? With nothing to do. This is 83, mind you. <laughs> uh, he looked toward Ted and the dog. Ted had gotten the baseball Camber's son had been hitting. He would throw it as far as he could, which wasn't very far, and the Camber St. Bernard would obediently get it bring, and bring it back to Ted. The ball was looking decidedly slobbery. Your dog is keeping my son amused. Cujo likes kids, Camber agreed. You want to drive your car into the barn, Mr. Trenton? <laughs> Just before they left, Camber's boy, whose name was Brett, actually lifted Tad onto Cujo's back and held him around the waist while Cujo patted, <clears throat> excuse me, patted obediently up and down the gravel dooryard twice. As it passed Vic, the dog caught his eye and Vic could have sworn it was laughing. So, of course, the next thing that is going to set off in the book, which comes into play 
you don't really, all you hear about is there's a problem with the sharp cereal dye that it's in a particular sharp cereal. It's a red dye that looks like blood, it's causing kids to puke red dye which looks like blood or have diarrhea that looks like blood. Sorry to be graphic, but now that's causing a problem with the cereal and it's creating a bad name. Now the professor's slogan, nope, nothing wrong here, is being called into question along with Vic and Roger who created the professor. Now this is all on, you know, they're in hot water now. It just, it sucks because they could easily lose the Sharp account, which is who they created the professor for. They could just take them and say, well, we're going to have to go in a different direction. And also, this is what's going to lead to Vic and Roger having to be gone for 10 days to come up with a new idea, a new slogan, a new way to kind of turn things around to get people interested. Like, don't worry, it's been taking situations under control, it's being handled, they're making sure the die isn't going to become an issue again. And just, it just sounds like a lot of, <clears throat> and I don't know shit about that, rebranding stuff. But now, because of Tad's nightmares in the movie... Vic has taken it upon himself to help his son by creating the monster words, which, if you want to call it a nursery rhyme, it's just something to help Tad cope with being in the dark. And by saying the monster words, I'm going to play this clip as you hear Vic telling Tad the monster words as he's carrying him through his darkened bedroom with a flashlight. Vic is checking the closet. And it's like, alright, where else you want me to check, buddy? Under the bed. Okay. Nope, no monsters under there. Too small for you. And then he also says, no monsters outside Tad's window. You can't hold on out there because, you know, the wind and all that. Monsters, stay out of Tad's room. You have no business here. No monsters in Tad's closet. It's too small for you in there. Vic. He is a great fucking... He is amazing as a father. The fact that he just made up these monster words on the fly. Either that or maybe it was something like a mom or a dad did for him when he was a kid and he was having nightmares. And I love how Vic says they have no business here, these monsters. There's no reason for them to hang around you. As in, this is our home. They have no business here. And it's just, I like that. Oh, he's just so good with him. So, of course, 
Uh, when Vic climbs into bed, I want to say he's like, uh, I think it was like 1.30 in the fucking morning. Like, oh, good golly. 1.30 in the morning, folks. Oh, my goodness. And mind you, of course, this guy's got to get up in the morning to go to work. So Donna and Vic are lying in bed, and she's just got, you know, she's laying on her back. Her hands are like, you know, over her chest folded over her chest and she's just kind of smiling at him and he's kind of you know he's laying on his side facing her and he's like what and she's like oh well you're just really good with him that's all and he asks well how am I with you it's almost like he's asking like are we good are we not are and she says wonderful and she kisses him and it's like they're Oh, there feels like such a damn disconnect because it looks like even though it's 1.30, if she were wanting to pound town, he would be on her in a heartbeat. But the fact it's like, oh um, my, it just, and even in the book, he even kind of wonders to himself, it's like they haven't in a while. I mean, yeah, they're dealing with Tad's nightmares and shit like that you know, keep them up during the night, but still, it's just like, maybe in the beginning they were hot and heavy, but it's just like, their sex life has just come to a fucking halt, and I'm like, yeah, because she's fucking getting it from Steve Kemp, she's getting all the sex she fucking wants, she ain't, I mean, a body, I guess, can, can only take so much, I guess, I mean, they're both probably in their 30s, that doesn't mean shit, though. I mean, I'm 39, and I still have a... <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know when women hit their peak. Is that, like, something that's in the, like, the mid-40s, the 50s? I don't know. He kisses him goodnight and turns out the light, and it's almost just, like, I just, I feel bad for him. Because at some point, he, he, even in the book, he wonders, could she be fucking around on me? Could she be getting it from somewhere else? Because he rocks it as a dad, but as a husband, I mean, as a provider, he rocks it. But as a husband and a lover, he kind of feels inadequate. Like something clearly is missing from our marriage. That a second child is not going to fucking fix. I'll tell you that right now. Who the fuck sleeps on their back? I mean, if you do, great. I'm a side sleeper. I am a side sleeper. Granted, I think when I wake up, I tend to be on my stomach for some weird reason, which I hear you're not supposed to sleep on your stomach. Not sure why. She just, she just goes to sleep and he's just looking. He, he oh my gosh, I just, I feel bad for him. He pretty much figures, well, clearly she's asleep. She isn't going to want sex. And then we come up with what's going on with the sharp cereal. It's actually, and it's a surprise to Vic. He comes down ready for work and the news is on and all of a sudden it's like, what the fuck? What the hell is going on? Nope. <laughs> Nothing wrong here. Well, that's not entirely true. This morning, thousands of people across the country thousands, reported internal thousands. hemorrhaging after eating sharp cereal products. The scare, however, proved to be a false alarm. Hi, Despite that fact, the scare has reached alarming proportions. Sharp cereal has been unavailable for comment. 
Nope, nothing wrong here. Go oh, fuck yourself. <laughs> That's our ad campaign. They recalled the whole goddamn series. There's no harm done, is there? No harm done, Donna. That guy comes into America's living room and he says to kids, he says, trust me. I understand. No, I don't think you do. You see, we created that guy, Roger and me. He's our brainchild. I understand. And these kids, they go out and they buy the cereal. <laughs> all the sharp cereals. All of them. Brand 16, all green, Cocoa Bears, Twinkles. And now, kids all over the country are peeing and puking red dye and scaring the hell out of their parents, and we told them to buy it. The sharp professor is us. That's our ass. Roger's in mine. You'll work it out. You always have before. <laughs> right, look, I appreciate this isn't a world crisis. It's not a mass suicide or anything. That'll be Roger. Hello? Yeah, sure, Roger. Hold on. It's Roger. Hi, Roger. Roger. Roger, calm down. Calm down. We'll work it out. We always have before. Ah, he's throwing her words right back at her no. face. Oh, okay! I'm guessing he already got the news that the cereal has been recalled, and this is just the news story that's breaking. I thought he learned from the news story, like, because it's 1983... But then again, you still got phones, so as soon as shit's going down, you're going to get a phone call from, you know, whoever. Your manager, whoever's in charge, the sharp cereal, I don't know. So, he comes down there, it's like, what the f- And he's telling Donna about this, because, you know, he's got a fucking vent, and he can't vent to Tad, because Tad's four. And she's like, don't worry, honey, it's going to work out. I, I get it, I understand, and Vic is all like, well, I appreciate your sympathy here, I mean, I get it, it's not a mass suicide, it's not a world crisis here, but this is my job, this is, and he's even saying, me and Roger, we created the professor, you know, this is, that's our creation, and now we're getting fucking backlash Oh my, I mean, you feel bad for him. It's just, you know, and the news lady said thousands across the country are peeing just hemor internal hemorrhaging, which of course proved to be a false alarm and all that shit, which of course it was. It was I thought there was something uh, in the trivia that this is kind of a play on something that did happen with a particular cereal that had red dye in it, whether it was Frankenberry or something. So I'm going to play here. Vic is hearing from, I'm guessing, his manager. His boss is getting an earful. So he is telling him, we need to read the professor, which is what like revamp it, change it, do something different. In the book, because you don't find out in the movie whether the whole Sharp account, this, that has been taken care of. In the book, it is, you know, conclusion that, yes, Vic managed to save the account and everything like that. Problems been solved. Nobody got hurt, right? What we're talking about here is a lot of scared people. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, it certainly could be worse. Hey, buddy, don't yell at me. I didn't do it. It's your dying, not my... Look, look, no harm was done, and I'm sure, given time, this whole thing will blow over. Special board meeting? Sure, we can be there. Right. 
process our position, read the professor. We lost the sharp account. Oh, if you can hear it in that clip, listen to his fucking manager or whatever. He's like, you better start taking this seriously. What the fuck? Damn, dude. Slow your fucking self down. I mean, that... That his boss seems overly exaggeratingly angry. I get it. It's a situation, and the fact that Vic is like, "Don't worry, I'm sure in time this whole thing will blow over." And then the guys like, "Well, there's a special motor meeting. You better be there. You better start taking this seriously." I'm surprised you're like, "You take this seriously, I will drop your ass." Because, you know, they, I mean, that house, that fucking house, he is making some major fucking dough with that job. But Roger, of course, is feeling from, you know, about the fucking die that was used. Like, hey, buddy, don't jump on my ass. That's your die. That caused a fucking problem. Roger hangs up. He's like, well, we lost the Sharp account. Well, I'm not surprised. But then again, it's not... What? Don't come up with this loan that says, nope, nothing wrong here, because <laughs> you know if shit goes down, you're, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass with that fucking slogan. So, now we're going to go over to Cambridge Place, and we see, see Cujo is really, he's starting to, it's a slow burn with this rabies where loud noises irritate him, and Joe is working on a car. There's a lot of noise coming from the barn, and Cujo just, he can't stand that noise. And in the book, you it's a lot of, in, not a lot, but it's internal. There's, my gosh, there are so many POVs. We also get POV from Joe's best friend, Gary. And there's a scene with Gary and Cujo. Cujo's hanging out with Gary. Gary gives him dog biscuits and this and that. And it's just, you also, you know, Cujo is, like, fighting inner demons as the rabies is kind of slowly taking over his personality. He's wanting to bite people, but he shows restraints. And just these images of what he wants to do to his family member, just ripping them apart and all this shit. And it's just, it, it's like he's fighting his inner demons and resisting as this disease is, like, taking over his mind. And he just has no appetite. He doesn't want to drink. Yeah, that's another thing. I thought hydrophobia was another word for or hydrophobia, another word, earlier word for rabies that actually gets brought up in the movie Old Yeller. Because that's in, like, the 1800s or wherever, whenever the fuck. And, you know, the guy there is, like, a lot of animals around these parts have hydrophobia. And, you know, Cujo just has no interest in eating or drinking water, which I remembered that report I did in 10th grade in English class on rabies on Stephen King's book, Cujo, just so I could play a clip of the movie in class. <laughs> Um, I, well, we all know, like, you can live, what, barely live three days without water before succumbing to dehydration, which is a big fucking part in this damn movie, which I'll get to in, in the book, too, definitely, because I want you, if you haven't read the book, I want you to see, to really put in your mind, put yourself in their position, 
It's hotter than fuck July in Maine when they are, like, in the middle of this yard. There's no, like, tree coverage anywhere. Just, oh, my goodness. I mean, if you think about it, you go to your car. It's been sitting for eight hours. You get out of work. It's daylight. It's 90-plus fucking degrees. You open your car door. A wave of heat just blasts you in the fucking face. Imagine sitting in your car and not really being able to have your windows down because a St. Bernard is attacking you. You would be fucking dead from that damn heat. It's not like they had, I don't even think like those window-like cover things that, you know, you, you know, sunshield shit. I don't think that would fucking help. Plus, they're driving a fucking Pinto that's got this big-ass, like, fucking hatchback, like, extra windshield, basically, in the back. So you're getting, like, sun-soaked from both fucking ends of the vehicle. There's no real escape from it. Okay, I want to note something here. And, like I said, I've watched this a billion times since I was 11. And now, you know, watching it for the podcast and watching it just this closely and picking up on things I might never have picked up on before. And this is having read the book also. But Joe Camber, he's in his barn garage auto shop working on something that's causing a lot of sparks, a lot of fucking noise. And Cujo, like I said, you know, rabies probably affects his hearing, makes him really hypersensitive to shit. But the way, and I want to rewind it and watch it again. At first I thought, oh, it's just a dog being annoyed by the sound. No, when he turns slowly, he lifts his head and he looks like looks at Joe. And we, you know, camera cuts back and sees Joe. I'm thinking, is this a turning point where Cujo is thinking what he would like to do to this guy, basically rip him to shreds? But there's that other, you know, part of Cujo that's still... The book goes through, you know, saying, you know, Cujo, he is basically a good dog. And even the book tells you Cujo's not an young dog anymore he's like five and you know the bigger the dog the lower the amount of years that they're going to be on the line uh what great danes are like six or seven years i mean maybe maybe st bernard's are probably like eight years i don't know but it's just it's almost like again this inner turmoil of good cujo versus rabid demon Cujo kind of slowly overtaking, but it's like, it's almost like a hint of, I could just rip that man apart if I wanted to, because he's making that noise and it's making my head hurt. But I'm not going to because I love this man. He's, you know, one of my three, you know, family members. And he stops himself. But it's just seeing this now and just, that recollect that light bulb just went on over my head. I'm like, I bet this is just th- this is the beginning. This is him stopping himself, saying, "No, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna tear my owner to pieces." Oh, and they close up on his muzzle where it's just above his nose, where that sore is, and then we see. A fly hovering right by it, like, ugh. 
Well, they do live in the country. There's going to be flies all over the fucking place. So, Kuja, yeah, he just, he starts whining. And he gets up and he just walks away. I think he ends up going under the house. Maybe it's like that thought just scared him so much that he's like, no, I gotta take myself out of this situation. I gotta walk away. Okay, so here's a fact about Cujo. <clears throat> he was a St. Bernard in his prime, five years old, nearly 200 pounds in weight, and now on the morning of June 16th, 1980, he was pre-rabid. So, among Donna's afternoon errands of, you know, getting some groceries, picking Ted up from preschool, if that's where he is, or daycare, I don't know, she decides to break it off with Steve. And, of course, she goes in, and this guy must work just based on whenever he gets a project, a carpenter project from somebody. Because it looks like it's the middle of the fucking afternoon, and he's sleeping oh who, who knows who knows with this guy and it's really interesting because in the novel steve has like dark hair like black hair and a black beard and just in the movie you know he's got you know sandy blonde hair also kind of with a beard a little beard but not a grizzly adams beard but anyway and of course he must have an afternoon Woody or something, because when she comes in, he's like, oh, come here for a second. Like, yeah, we know where this would lead. But she stays right in the doorway. And Steve lives in, it looks like it's a house, and you can see, like, the shades are drawn, because that's probably where the bedroom is. And mind you, this is a small town. So... You think everyone would be in Donna's business. I mean, she's going over to Steve Kemp's in the middle of the afternoon. She lets herself in because apparently he doesn't lock his door. Being a small town, I guess no one locks their doors in Castle Rock. <laughs> what the heck was that? Oh yeah, Dennis the Menace where he's like, I bet they don't even lock their doors. So, <laughs> when she shuts the door, he jumps awake like... He's expecting someone to come in and fucking flat out murder him. Like one of the, maybe one of the other ladies he's fucking that is also married. Her husband found out and is ready to fucking stab him in his sleep. So it's like he's got to be on his guard even when he's sleeping. Then lock your fucking door, Steve. And then when he realizes it's her, it's like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and when... He, he's like, they both say hi, and then he says, come here, because you know what he wants. And then she cuts to the chase immediately. She says, I can't see you anymore, Steve. And he sits up and says, well, it's a little late for that, isn't it? Because she's in his home. Like, he probably thought she was coming for an afternoon, afternoon rendezvous. She could have done this shit over the phone, if he has a phone. I'm sure he must. I mean, he's got a contracting business. I want people going to get a hold of his ass. I mean, it's not like they can call his cell phone or anything. And she says, well, I just came by to tell you that. 
Why did you have to come and see him to tell him you could have called and saved yourself? I don't know where the fuck that man lives. Maybe whether it's a half hour out of town. Who the fuck knows? But, yeah, she just wanted to break things off. And, of course, he doesn't exactly take this lightly. And he actually does sit up where he's kind of, like, got his arms over his knees. And he says, okay, can you tell me why? So, (laughs) first, like, I don't know. I mean, I got this terrific husband and this terrific kid, and here I'm screwing around with the local stud. She calls him the local stud. Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, when I think of referring to, like, a stud, especially around this time, I'd say someone, what, probably in their mid to late 20s? Not someone who's, like, bordering, uh, late 30s, early 40s. She says, here I am screwing around with a local stud. No offense intended, of course. He says, none taken. And he looks at it. It's like he's not just kind of confused. I don't know how long they've been doing this. But he's also pissed off. He's like, what the hell's the matter? Like, what's the matter with you? What's going on? And she says, it's just over. That's all. I just, I want it over. It's like she wants a clean break. She wants to alleviate herself of the guilt. She's always going to, you know, in the back of her mind, because, you know, regardless whether she ends a relationship, she's still always going to have the fact that she was fucking around on her husband. The fact that you ended it doesn't make it any different. I'm guessing what? Just end it so that way she can put her primary focus where it should be on her husband and her kid. Not that she's not thinking of her kid, but... And <clears throat> she says, it's it's not your fault. It was just a stupid mistake. I'm thinking, one of many mistakes you made on a repeated regular... Why do I feel like I'm shut and slut-shaming Donna? I'm, I'm trying not to. And... He seemingly acts okay with it, where he's like, okay, whatever you want. Like, you know it's not okay, seriously. That guy, just the tone of his voice when I play the clip, is the least okay with that. He's like, probably like, no, she might be breaking it off, but I'm not done yet. He's got some stupid, poorly inked tattoo on his arm, so probably he did time, like, in the Navy or some shit. I don't know where they just the really bad ink job. I just it probably was flattering back when it was first done, but after a while, it's like that ink tattoo of whatever that's supposed to be. It's whether it's an eagle or a bird or something. It just it tends to take on like a like a greenish tint to it. Like maybe it might have been. You know, black ink at once, but after a while it almost looks like it's been absorbed into your veins and it's just, like, green, like, ew. Not flattering at all. She puts a hand to her mouth. Sorry, and then she leaves. She is so apologetic with him. He gets his pants on. He climbs. As soon as she shuts the door, he rips those those blankets off. He... like, jumps into a pair of jeans. I mean, this guy could get an award for the someone who could put their jeans on pretty fucking fast. So, 
she's walking to her car, has no idea that Steve is following behind her, and then we cut to who just happens to be in the neighborhood driving down the road. It's Vic in his Jaguar, and when he passes the street that Donna's car is parked on, he looks for a split second, sees his wife there, probably wondering what the fuck is she doing this, this, and then not only that, he sees Steve coming up behind her, grabbing her by the arm, and pulling her around to face him, like getting in her damn face, and he's like, the fuck? So, of course, Vic does a U-turn, and then we got, and it looked like there's plenty of space between him and the car that was a ways back. For him to be able to do a U-turn, even though they probably don't allow that on those streets. But still, someone decides to honk at him. Like, what the fuck? Like, dude, you were like 100 feet away. Fucking relax. He did not cut you off. There's plenty of space there. Yeah, he's driving around, and yeah, he's just driving down there, and he turns his head, looks, out of the, like, out of the corner of his eye, and then he turns, like, really looks as much as he can while he's driving down the road. He's probably, the fuck, I know that Pinto, there's my wife. What the fuck is Steve doing manhandling? He's basically manhandling Donna. And by the time he does the little U-turn dealie and drives a fat pass through, Donna's already fucking left. So she clearly must have went in the other dang direction. No, he's not going to let it go. Oh, he actually does turn down the road where Donna's car was, and of course it's not there. Does he know that, well, he must know that Steve lives on that street. He saw him there with Donna. I mean, I can imagine he's probably like, what the fuck is she doing down here in this part of town? Why is she going to Steve's place? Why would she have any business? I mean, I know he, he's doing, like, carpentry work and shit like that, but there's no reason for her to actually go to his place. It's not like she's dropping off a check because he's still working on their table. So, I'm guessing this has got to be some type of summer preschool thing that's held in a church or something. Because here comes Tad with his metal Pac-Man lunchbox. 
And we got a couple girls that are hanging, because it's like a fenced in, there's like a little fence entryway there. And as he's coming up, we got two girls that are playing jump rope right in the fucking entranceway. So basically anyone who tries to come through the entranceway, like Tad just did, they're going to get fucking clotheslined with that fucking jump rope. Because he's trying to get out of their little jump rope deal and get his lunchbox which fell to the ground. Like, girls, move! damn kids are getting caught in this fucking jump rope at least like three and tad move the jump rope somewhere else not in front of the entrance exit way of that like preschool daycare whatever the hell damn it is foggy it is looking like where that car is parked and then just off to the side of it it is but then again i mean this movie it's supposed to be set during the summer but it's like april and you guys know, like, April is usually a month of transition. It's still kind of winter-ish, even though it technically is spring. But it's like, that seems like April is all about rain, fog, transition from winter into spring. Yeah. So, yeah, Donna's just been sitting there. Ted jumps in the car. He's like, hey, look what I made! And he... It's really cool. Well, I'm sure that Danny Pintero didn't draw this picture. Someone else, maybe, uh, I don't know. And it's really cool. It's a picture. It's, got a, it, it's crinkled, of course, because clearly it was dropped while he was, like, trying to get out of that jump rope tangle. And I'm sure it was stepped on a couple times and folded up and what. Anyway, and it's got, like, an orange truck. With big black wheels. But I like how it also... It's just the detail of it. He even added, like, one of those extended cabs for it. That... Well, not... Ex no. Extended cab. Maybe that's not what I'm thinking of. Because it's a two-door, you know, regular truck. But it's got that, you know, cap on the back of it. With, like, the little window thing. So, the... My dad had one on a truck that he had. At one time or another. The thing is, Donna is very perceptive when it comes to Tad. His bangs are covering what looks like this long, like, it's rivaling Harry Potter's scar across his head. Because it's not a zigzag pattern on Tad's forehead, but even with his blonde hair covering it, she, like, puts her hand, like, lifts his bang hair up. He's like, uh-oh, what happened to you? He, she's like, uh-oh, what happened to you? And he said, nothing. And she's like, yeah, it doesn't look like nothing. And he says he got hit by a swing. So what the hell happened? Did he, like, jump off a swing? And then as he was trying to get sorted out, someone who was swinging next to him ended up kicking him in the fucking head? Is that what happened? Holy shit. Because you're not going to get that if... The swing is just, like, he jumped off the swing and then the swing, like, swung back and, like, whopped him right in the head. No. That's clearly, like, he was trying to get, he got out of the swing, didn't realize someone was coming foot first, and whacked him right in the face. And plus, he's so nonchalant by it. He's like, I got hit by a swing. Like, it's no big deal. It's like, it's it's not like I have a concussion or anything. You see a bump on my forehead? No, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And I like how she, oh, she just love her in mom mode. She's like, all right, come here. Let me make it better. And she gives 
kiss on the forehead. And I love how Tad just wipes it away, and he's got this little smirk on his face. Let me make it better. And then, and then she does the, oh, all right, overdone with gone, right? And he says, overdone with gone. Yeah, of course we know in 1983 kids did not have the type of booster seats like he most likely would be in till he's like maybe eight years old or something like that. I don't know the age limit, like I said before. But no, he sure as hell would not be sitting up front. So we do see the Pinto acting up. We're passing a graveyard. And we see it kind of like, and it's like, and of course, Thomas like, fuck. But Tad thinks it's like, <laughs> it's fun. She's like, oh, you like this, huh? He's like, yeah, it's fun. Like, you would say that. <laughs> You're not in the driver's seat dealing with the problem. And I don't know shit about cars as far as what this problem is. I'm just going to throw a line out there and say maybe something to do with the fuel pump. Or something, because the way it just, like, it's almost like the car's, like, not getting a lot, like, get, get, something's going on that it's, like, chugging along, like, it's not being fed enough gas, like, something's fucked up about it. But who the hell wants to drive an unreliable car? And not to mention, he's driving a fucking Jag, and she's stuck with a piece of shit Pinto. Like, dude, you make advertising money. You couldn't get your wife a more reliable car. Doesn't have to be brand ass new of 1984 or 1983 or whatever, but something at least. Granted, if that were the case, we wouldn't have a movie. That looks like, honestly, you would get neck damage. So we're going, like your head's like banging against the headrest. Like, how do you not get a concussion from that? Fucking hell. Here we go with the song about the... <laughs> Jeremy, every every year we watch this and every year we comment on this fucking weird-ass song. I see your hiney. It's nice and shiny. If you don't hide it, I think I'll bite it. And then she does a... Or the, or the biting motion with her mouth. I don't fucking know. What the fuck is this song? It's weird. They sing it again on the way to Joe Camber's place. And then there's another time where this song sounds like something just made up. I'm going to research that and see if that is an actual song. Because at one point she's singing what sounds like Five Little Monkeys sitting, jumping on the bed, one fell off and broke his head. Something like Five Little Monkeys. I'm like, okay, I know that. And then it's like, one rolled over and the other one said, I see your hiney, it's nice and shut. Ew! This is the weirdest fucking song ever. Especially for a children's song. I know it's 83. I know. The the, the Ring Around the Rosie is about the blue, blue, bubonic plague. And, you know, the farmer in the dell, if you heard my Pinch for a Pinch episode... A full house. I talk about the lyrics to that weird song. And of course, as soon as Tad sees Vic's Jags, like, Daddy's home! And of course, which is surprising because he probably doesn't get back home until close to dinner time. So it's like, what the fuck is he doing here? And of course, you know, Donna is just like, oh boy. 
And she's like, oh, yeah, so I see. And she's looking in the rearview mirror, kind of like, you know, patting her face. Like, do my eyes look red? Do they look puffy? Making, she, almost like she's trying to, uh, like, hide evidence that she went to Steve's. Like, he already fucking knows. <laughs> when she turns the car off and Tad's, like, already out the door, saying, all right, everybody out. Like, she's got a car full of kids. That's just her and Tad. So, <laughs> he is very brusque with his answers. She's like, oh, hi. He doesn't say anything as Tad runs up the steps and Vic picks him up. And she's like, oh, home early, huh? He's like, yeah. His answers are very short and clipped and brisk. Like, yeah, there's something going on. And Ted's story changes when Vic asks, what happened to your head? He says, fell off the swing. I thought he got hit. Okay, maybe he fell off the swing and then as he was trying to get up from the ground, someone came along and like feet first, like, boosh, like hit him. Like, you got to be careful. That's a dangerous area. The playground with the swing. I was a kid once too. I know. Who, who, who of us hadn't, like, let's see if we can get the swing going and jump off the swing. Who hasn't? Now, I never, ever, ever tried to get so high to try to go over the, but I, I don't know if anyone's ever achieved that. I would hope not. I'm sure there are others that have, like, gotten the swing so high that the poles that are holding the swing set in the ground actually start to come up from the ground. That's creepy. So Vic sets Tad on top of the uh, Pinto as Donna's trying to get the latch open on the hatchback to get the groceries out. She's like, Pinto's doing that thing again. You know what I told you about last week? Yeah, it's still fucking doing that. After the first match, like, well, I'll have to take it up to Camber's. And she's like, yeah, I've heard that before. So... Even Vic doesn't hear, let me see your, the scratch on your head. So he goes to lift up Tad's bangs. And it's always like, no, daddy, don't want to kiss me on the forehead. Because he starts to, like, crawl across the top of the car. And Vic's like, no, no, come here. It's okay. So, of course, Vic's like, hey, you want to play some baseball? And Tad's like, yeah. And, of course, Dana, 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 <laughs> Donna says, there's a loaded groceries here, Tad. That's your job. And, of course, Vic undermines her and says, no, not today. And says, hey, buddy, go get your mitt. You left it on the front lawn again. And Donna's like, okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking, what is Tad going to be able to bring in? Those grocery bags are as tall as he is. Yeah, because, when, yeah, when she says, you know, there's a lot of groceries here, Tad, that's your job. And Vic's hugging Tad and says, nope, not today. And then tells Tad to go on and get his mitt. And Donna just is like, okay. Well, it's almost like when T Vic asks Donna, like, so, uh, what'd you do today? It's almost like he's kind of hoping she might confess. Like, oh, I stopped by uh, Steve's today. But no, she like, no groceries, errands, you know, the huge. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then, of course, she changes the subject to his job, which I'm sure he doesn't want to talk about. Because he's like, oh, yeah, she asked if Roger came in. And Vic's like, no, he's still in mourning over the Sharp account. He's like, 
crying in a huddled mess in his bed in a darkened room and he won't come out or something. Apparently what his wife said. I don't fucking know. He honestly is really avoiding his, uh, avoiding eye contact with him as she's saying it. She's got like a six pack of the, uh, the glass Coke bottles. I'm honestly, I love the plastic bottles. And the cans. I, no way in hell. And it's funny, because I remember um, at our kitchen, on to the right side of the sink, on the side of it, there was a Coca-Cola, like, um, bottle opener thing that you could just take, I guess, the side of the Coke bottle, or what, even beer, whatever the hell, and, you know, just kind of nudge it upward, like, on its side, and nudge, like, that part to get that off, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. I don't think I ever used it. But did any of you have something like that? Like, like, those openers that are just kind of, like, uh, for the can, for, um, the glass bottles and stuff? Jeremy, I think Jeremy said that like, his grandparents had something like that? <laughs> Get that fucking jump rope out of there. Shit. Hi, pumpkin. Hey, look what I made. Hey, that's really nice. Better than I could do. Uh-oh. What happened to you? Nothing. Yeah? Doesn't look like nothing. I got hit by a swing. Uh-oh. Come here. Better watch that shit. Mwah. You gotta come up with a new philosophy. I don't think that's a healthy philosophy for a four-year-old. Overdone with gone. Overdone with gone. God, listen to this car. It's not normal. Yeah, I love getting banged in the back of the head with a headrest. <laughs> Mom is so gross. I see. Everybody out is just you and Ted. My big guy. Oh. Home early, huh? Yeah. What happened to your head? Can I turn that thing again? I'll have to take it out the cameras. Let me see. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Come here. Hey. Do you like to play some baseball? Yeah. Would you? There's a lot of groceries here, Ted. That's your job. The groceries oh, that are as tall as he is. Go on. Go get your mitt. You left it on the front lawn again. Go on. Okay. I'm undermining her parenting. <laughs> so what'd you do today? Well, you know. It's almost like he's hoping to confess. Aaron. Today? Those no, eggs are just sitting right on top of the groceries. Like, those are going to tip, they're going to fall, they're going to break. So here, now we're going to the camber house where Joe just zooms in, kicking up a cloud of dust in that driveway with this truck of his. He goes into the barn and sees something there that surely was not there the last time he was in that barn. And no, it's not a rabbit coo, Joe. But we do, before we even see Joe coming into the yard with his truck, we do see Cujo 
And he is just, he is becoming lesser like the adorable dog that we saw in the beginning of the movie. He's got goopy eyes. It's just no amount of wiping would remove the goopiness from under his eyes. And you hear the growl, you know, the growling, like the low undertone growling from him as he gets up and he walks away. And then he settles underneath the house. Oh, yeah, as I said, Joe goes in the barn and he sees this contraption. And I don't know who the fuck wrapped it because, uh, <laughs> it's a piss poor job. Like, they're trying to hide what it is. And he's like, well, I sure as fuck didn't order this, so who the fuck did? So he goes into the house. And he's like, what the fuck, is, what the hell is that out there in the barn? I sure as hell didn't buy that. And Charity, who's fixing dinner, or whatever it is, she's fixing a meal for Joe. <laughs> I guess he gets steak and everyone else gets, like, leftover meatloaf from two nights ago. Or maybe that chicken that... <laughs> it's an engine hoist. And even Brett's like, you kept telling me that you needed one. And, of course, you definitely can tell a difference in this family and even this relationship between Joe and Charity. Joe calls the shots around the house. He is physically abusive with his wife. The way that he grabs her arm and yanks it. My good grief. He and Steve are so, so fucking similar. Um, but anyway, yeah, he grabs her arm and whips her around. It's like, you tell me what the fuck you're up to. And she is just like, sit down, eat, and I will tell you. Okay. And she asks him, well, can't you use it? And Steve grabs a beer out of... Steve. And Joe... Joe grabs a beer out of the bit, out of the fridge. I cannot talk today. I'm sorry. Blech. <laughs> he grabs a beer out of the fridge. He's like, well, we damn well can't afford it. And both Brett... Brett is eyeing his mom like, come on, mom. Just tell him. And she's just waiting for the perfect moment. He's sitting down. He's got his beer. Popped his beer open. He's got a steak. And she pulls out from the bodice of her dress. I don't know what you call it. Like the, uh, the booble dressel area. I don't know. Uh, she pulls oh, this piece of paper. She won the lottery. Woo! $5,000. And I, I don't know why before in the past I kind of like $5,000. <laughs> I I would fucking take $5,000 right fucking now. I would be absolutely cool with that. I know $5,000 does not seem like a lot, but to some it feels like a million dollars. And again, this must be the dog that apparently died from bloat while filming because this dog is in... Because it does seem the tribute, like, the main dog, like, that's in the beginning of the movie and a little bit throughout, died of bloat. And I think this must be the one. This is the short-haired one with the overly wrinkly face. And he's just settling below the house because he clearly feels like shit, this poor dog. A hydraulic hoist. 
an engine hoist. How the fuck else are you going to get those engines out of those cars if you got to work on an engine? That is the biggest loaf of bread. Does Charity have a bread maker in that house somewhere? Because that is fucking huge. That is the kind that, this is the size of bread that looks like it would come straight out of a bread maker. I swear, well, my, my grandma had a bread maker, and when we go into the house and everything, it would smell like fresh bread. It smells so damn good. I like these big ass, flat, like the size of a steak, slabs of bread, but thick cut, really, like thick, like steak cut, like slabs of bread. Honestly, I'm going to be honest here and just say, I mean, it's okay. I honestly like the smell of the bread cooking versus the overall taste of the the aftermath of the bread. Oh, yeah, he grabs her, her wrist while she's cooking his fucking steak, by the way, on the in the frying pan. He grabs her arm and says, you tell me what the fuck is up here, Charity. And she... Sit down, eat, and I will. Uh, yeah, I can see, like, the mixture here of, like, egg white slash whatever sugar. Sh what? It's like a mixture of stuff that they put on the dog's face showing, you know, goopiness and all this stuff. It definitely looks like, like, yolky egg white just running down the side of the dog's, just down its eyes. Like, ugh. The dog's eyes are already, I mean, they rival a bloodhound's with the red-rimmed eyes. She even asks him, can't you use it? He says, well, we damn well can't afford it. And it's like, well, about that. We actually can't afford it. Classic wife beater, tank top. Oh, we call them tank tops, but it's fitting for that guy because he is just an asshole to his wife. Oh, is he eating, Brett eating steak too? Can't, Brett keeps eyeing his mom and watching his dad's response. Like, mom, are you going to tell him? Come on. <laughs> she slowly, I love how she pulls out this folded over multiple times piece of paper. And it's not in her, like, bra of her dress area. It's more like just under the strap. And he's, like, cutting into a steak while he's watching her unfold slowly, by the way, this piece of paper. And she's holding it up. You can't see what is on it. <laughs> he's probably like, what, what is she doing? What is that? Is that divorce papers? <laughs> because she is literally grinning from ear to ear. She's got the biggest smile on her face. He says, I won the lottery. I love how she just smiles. She is so proud of herself. I love how she's got, like, her hands are kind of, like, supporting, like, her lower back. And she's just so proud. She doesn't even read it because I don't know what you could read on that thing. Oh, they also have A1 on the kitchen table. And I don't know what the fuck type of beer that's supposed to be. Uh, there's ketchup. There's a slab of butter. Uh, like a stick of butter on a plate. So she even tells him, you know, $5,000. And he doesn't even, he's just too, you know, cutting into his steaks. Like, oh, when do we get it? And she's like, um, two weeks, a little less. Is that really, I mean, maybe that's how it worked in 83. 
for anyone out there who's even won the lottery, even won a little bit, or especially something in like the thousands, like 5,000 or more, does it take two weeks or does it take longer? Any of you out there who have won the lottery, who have won at least a, like a thousand to ten thousand to whatever, if you want to email the podcast at LBOM Wonder Years Podcast at gmail.com and give me a heads up like, hey, this is usually how long it takes. Yes, I could probably look it up on Google, but I want to hear from the personally, people who personally won the lottery, 5,000, 1,000, or 10,000 or higher up. I want to hear what your experience is with going with getting, you know, your earning, your winnings, your winnings. So, yeah, definitely. And Charity's voice just kind of falters on the, she's got, it's got like a nervous little twinge to it. Whereas before she was so happy and proud and it just seems like she's not getting the reaction from Joe she was hoping she would probably get from him. Like he, this is probably just normal Joe. It's not like she was expecting him to get out of his seat and start tap dancing across the room and like uh, take her in a, in a, you know, you know, you know, dance, whatever, waltzing her around the kitchen and hugging her, because that is clearly not what Joe Camber is about. He doesn't even take off his fucking hat. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm going to table that for when we get to that scene coming up, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about with, with this whole hat dealie. About something that's revealed later with with his hat or something. <laughs> I, I, I'm making more of a deal out of it than it really is, but I'll, I'll table that for when I get to that scene. He barely even glances at her. He's just stuffing his maw full of steak. He's like, thanks. Like, thanks. Like, not even really like, oh. So is he saying thanks for the engine waste or thanks you won me $5,000? Or both? I don't know really the response I think she was wanting. Anyway, she just, Charity looks like the picture of a broken woman who is just hanging on for dear life to this marriage of, I don't really what she's even getting out of this marriage, but um, she asks, like, I got you a present, Joe. You give me one, okay? I want to take, and I, I'm saying this all from memory, because like I said, I, I've seen this movie so many damn times since I was 11. And I'm 39 now, guys. So, that's a lot of watchings. So, yeah. She says she wants to go visit her sister in Connecticut for a week and take Brett with her. Oh, my heart breaks for her. She is so tentative with him. So, Connecticut and Maine, are they, like, not too far from each other? Because I know that Connecticut, like, butts right up against, like, New York, right? And the same with New Jersey. Like, they're, like, people talk about, like, those that live in New York and then they vacation in Connecticut or they get a house in Connecticut that they can hang out in and watch the leaves turn or something. What made him something else besides the steak? Because he's eating something that's kind of whitish. Did she cook an onion with that steak or something? And he's got a little uh, onion? I don't know. Oh, potato! Maybe it's a potato! Like part of a potato or something. Why the fuck am I harping on what this man's putting in his mouth? He is 
the way that he's kind of side-eyeing her, it's almost one of two things. Where he's actually, it looks like he's considering what she's asking, or he's looking at her like, how dare you even ask me that? Like, you know better than to come at me with these questions while I'm eating. What the hell is that? Dollars. You wanted one, then you'll have a dollar twice your one. You kept Like, when do I get it? Thanks. What giant ass piece of steak you just put in the front? I got your present. You give me one, Jim. Okay? He's not even looking at her. I want to go away for a week. <coughs> with Brett. <coughs> see my sister in Connecticut. <coughs> So I want to read real quick about charity, and we kind of get her sizes. See, there are very many different POVs. Quinny, please stop playing with that. All right. More than anything, in the more than anything in the world, she wanted to go to Connecticut to see her sister Holly. It had been six years now. In the summer of 1974, she remembered well enough because it had been a bad summer for her, except for that one pleasant weekend. 74 had been the year Brett's night problems had begun. Restlessness, bad dreams, and more and more frequently incidents of sleepwalking. It was also the year Joe began drinking heavily. Brett's uneasy nights and his somnambulism had eventually gone away. I don't know what the fuck somnambulism is. Joe's drinking had not. Brett had been for them. He was 10 now and didn't even remember his Aunt Holly, who had been married for six years. She had a little boy named after her husband and a little girl. Charity had never seen either child, her own niece and nephew, except for the Kodachrome's Holly occasionally sent in the mail. So I'm guessing that's about Christmas cards or something? Okay. She had gotten scared of asking Joe. He was tired of hearing her talk about it. And if she asked him again, he might hit her. It had been almost 16 months since she'd last asked him if maybe they couldn't take a little vacation down Connecticut way. Not much of a one for traveling was Mrs. Camber's son, Joe. He liked it just fine in Castle Rock. Let's see. Yeah, I guess it also talked about the fact that um, Joe wanted to take Brett up doing the camping 
hunting thing would get his friend Gary and some other hunting men in charity and put her foot down like no I don't want my son around that kind of language that kind of behavior the drinking and then running around with rifles in the fucking woods and shit so she supposed that sooner or later Brett would go with okay blah 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 let's see if Joe would let them go alone, but there was no sense thinking of that. Joe could go places alone or with his friends, but she couldn't, not even with Brett and Toe. That was one of their marriage's ground rules. Yet she couldn't help thinking about how much better it would be without him. Without him sitting in Holly's kitchen, swigging beer, looking Holly's gym up and down with those insolent brown eyes. It would be better without him being impatient to be gone until Holly and Jim were also impatient for them to be gone. She and Brett, just the two of them, they could go on the bus. She thought last November he wanted to take Brett hunting with him. Okay. Could a trade be worked out? Cold came to her, filling the hollows of her bones with spun glass. Would she actually agree to such a trade? He could take Brett to Moosehead with him in the fall if Joe, in his turn, would agree to let them go to Stratford on the bus. There was money enough, now there was, but money alone wouldn't do it. He'd take the money and that would be the last she would see of it. Unless she played her cards right, her cards just right. Just right. Her mind began to move faster. The pounding outside stuffed. She saw Brett leave the barn, trotting and was dimly grateful. Some premonitionary part of her was convinced that if the boy ever came to serious harm, it would be in that dark place with the sawdust spread over the old grease. Blah, 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 blah. There was a way. There must be a way. If she was willing to gamble, in her fingers she held a lottery ticket. She turned it over. She turned it over and over in her hand as she stood at the window, thinking. So now in the movie we meet Gary. I don't know how the fuck you say his name. Per purveyor, purveyor, pervy, I don't know. Oh, well, of course, now, since it won the lottery, we find out that Joe has agreed to let Charity take Brett to Connecticut to see her sister for a week. And Gary is all like, what the hell are you going to do in Boston? And, of course, Joe's like, well, what makes you think I can afford to go anyway? Gary's going on like, hey, shit, you're rolling in it. Like, you won the fucking lottery, man. You can do whatever. And Joe mentions something about, like, oh, you, you might have to dig out something from the mattresses all. So, Gary, of course, knows Joe pretty well. It's like, oh, you're kicking up your heels a little, aren't you, Joe? You're gonna go right to the, like, you're gonna go right to the combat zone. Don't know what the fuck that is. Is that a porno theater somewhere? See a couple of dirty movies and try to get the clap. So basically, of course, I wouldn't be surprised if he were fucking around in his wife. Because that just seems like the type of person that Joe is. And of course, this is something that's going to come back later. I always thought this. Is Joe says, you better look out, pervert, or I'll sick my dog on you. And Gary's like, that dog? Seriously? Because Cujo's just laying there. <laughs> Gary's like, you can sick that dog on me if I were coming at you with a straight razor in each hand. Basically saying your dog ain't shit. Your dog ain't gonna do shit to me because it's a St. Bernard. The fact that Joe does not notice this dog is not in the best condition. Look at its face! Look at its face in the goopy yellow on the muzzle. 
Yeah. And Gary, I'll stick my dog on him. He's slapping Cujo's back. And Cujo, like, lifts his head, like, huh, what? Huh? Oh. Please don't ask me to do anything. I have no energy. My body, it aches. My ears hurt. I want water, but apparently I can't have any because I'm scared. I thought that was the thing. Hydrophobia is like fear of water. Hydrophobia. Hydrowater phobia fear. So, of course, Gary goes up to break some ice in his uh, freezer. He's got the dingiest fucking place. It is so gross. It just, ugh. Everything's coated in dust and grime and, ugh. My goodness gracious. So he gets up to do that and he's asking Joe, like, well, what'd your wife say about it? And Joe's like, well, she don't know. She don't gotta know. She's gonna be gone. She's gonna take her the boy to visit her sister. She's gonna be gone for a week. Well, he cleared his working schedule. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want someone who's, like, baked and drunk off their ass to be working on my fucking car. <laughs> like, he'll do a good job and won't rob you blind because he's drunk while he's working on it, so he probably won't remember what to charge you anyway. Taking a hammer! Gary is taking a hammer to, like, fucking blocks of ice in his freezer. Gary comes back with some ice cubes, like, oh, let me guess, you're gonna spend the lump of that lottery. So she won $5,000, but after taxes are taken out, how much of that money is she actually going to get? Like, you might have won, quote-unquote, 5000 but after all said and done, where do you got, like, $2,500? <laughs> like, well, that, even in 83, I'm sure, that is not nothing to sniff at. And, of course, Joe talks about the three Bs. Broads, booze, baseball. He's like, come on, Gary, I don't want to do this by myself. Come with me. And, of course, this is Gary's, like, life motto. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit if I do. I don't care. And of course that Joe was like, Whoa, yeah! Come on, Gary! Let's go do this! Like, the fuck? When Joe was clapping, Cujo lifts his head up and just starts growling, like, enough with that fucking noise! Anything is, like, too loud for him. Joe weighs his head, but now you're lucky I don't kill you both right now. Vic is 
I guess, cutting out early in the afternoon. I figure it turns out he's got to go on a trip anyway for 10 days, which we'll learn about later. And we see Tad by himself playing with their little yellow bowls of paint with, like, green and blue and red and so on and so forth. Hanging out by himself. Looks so bored. And as soon as Tad sees his father, he starts running like, You've come to get me! you come to get me! And Vic picks him up and it's like, Yep. Like, hey, you having a good time at summer camp? And of course, Tad's shaking like, Mm-mm. <laughs> and, and Vic's like, Well, your mom said you were having fun. And Tad's like, No. That's yucky and gross. It's probably mosquitoes all over the fucking place. <laughs> so he's like, hey, you want to come? You want to go home? And Tad's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, let's race me to the Jaguar. And of course, Vic <laughs> pretends to have a sore knee. He's like, oh, my knee. Oh, my knee. <laughs> when he asks, like, hey, you having a good time at summer camp? And Tad's like, nah, it's yucky. I think in the book, I'm trying to think, I think, like, there was some kid who was bullying Tad, so that's another reason why he didn't want to be there. And, of course, Donna would say, like, oh, Tad loves it. He's having so much fun. It looks like he's hanging out by himself. <laughs> Tad just, like, I don't know why she told you that, but I'm not. Yeah, I don't honestly think that you could just come up, like, hey, my kid's hanging out at this place. I'm just going to come and take him. I think you probably would want to give someone a heads up. Like, hey, this is my kid. I'm taking him. Granted, you probably have to show some ID. I don't know how that works nowadays, but <laughs> I don't think you just have like, hey, kid, come on. And Tad is wearing a white and canary yellow shirt, striped shirt. And, of course, he's wearing the typical boy um, socks, which are, like, the yellow with the thinner, the big yellow stripe, like the thinner stripes on the top and bottom. So Donna, of course, is getting laundry done, just staying inside the house. It is so fucking foggy wherever they show, they show the outside. It's always foggy because it's April, uh, even though the movie depicts it as summertime. And uh, she's drinking water. And then all of a sudden, this hand comes out of nowhere and, like, lightly grabs her shoulder. Of course, if you, you're you doing a cut, whatever, or doing anything, and someone comes up from behind you and, like, puts a hand on your shoulder, and you're not expecting it, you know that cup is going to, like, just drop. Like, don't sneak up on people like that. And then, yeah, it's Steve. And he gives her a fake-ass flower. I mean, it looks fucking fake to me. And she's like, what the hell are you doing here? And he's like, well, you gave me a key. I brought your table back. It's all stripped. It's a beautiful piece of work. He tells him, well, leave it on the back porch and you can leave. Like, yeah, I already did leave it on the porch. I'm thinking, and then what the fuck are you still doing here? Why the fuck would you give him a fucking key to your house so he can drop off furniture when, that he's working on when you're not there? That is bullshit. Just leave it in the fucking yard. I will get it later. 
You don't need to have a key to my house. That was stupid. No, when he grabs her and she turns around freaked out. She's like, you scared the shit out of me. What the hell is wrong with you? Oh, oh, wait a minute. No, in the book he mentions about, you know, you gave me a key, remember? Because when she asks, how did you get in there? He, How did you get in here? He changes the stuff, the subject like oh yeah i brought your table back it's stripped it's a beautiful piece of work and of course she <laughs> I, I mean he asked where tadpole you know where where's tad and she says oh he's upstairs sleeping thinking like oh if i say he's upstairs sleeping he'll leave he's not gonna like she's probably thinking well he's not gonna try anything with my son here he goes out to, you know, take her hand, and she's like, Steve, stop. And he's like, hey, I miss you, okay? Like, I can't stop thinking about you. He is fucking stalker mode. It's creepy. You know, she must have known in the back of her mind that even though she broke it off with him, and he's still got a way to get into her house. Even if she broke off all contact with him. Well, well, the fact that he was still working on their table. So you still had to, you know, deal with him one more time. It's like, ugh. He's like, I miss touching you. And she's like, please, Steve, please. And she's telling him, like, quit it. And then he grabs the back of her head and, like, shoves his tongue down her throat. But he's very... Forceful. And the fact that she's just wearing this long, long, you know, 80s long sweater that normally would, like, go past your fucking knees. But it goes, like, maybe past her, like, hips. And she's clearly either she's not wearing underwear or she is wearing underwear because he rides his hand all the way up her fucking thigh. She starts, like hitting him and just saying it's my home it's my goddamn home you bastard and just pounding his chest and it's like what the fuck are you doing here why are you bringing this into my home why are you bringing it's like i get that if she was having an affair you wouldn't bring that into your home you're doing it outside of your home it's not like she's taking him to the bedroom that she shares with her husband and fucking him there no she's like this is separate from from my life and this is just uh, and, and he's he, he's taking my surprise like what what are you doing and everything and she's like pounding his you know her fists on his chest like basically get the fuck off me get away from me and then again he's a guy that outweighs her right a little bit and he's a lot stronger the, the way that he was literally vice grip hand on the back of her, her fucking neck so she could not really break away from him shoving his tongue down her throat. He shoves her back into this table that had eggs and milk on it, which drop onto the floor, creating a mess. And I remember um the, the King Me that did the episode on the review of this movie had mentioned about the egg and the milk falling, you know, on the floor, the broken egg and the milk and the spilt milk. And they're like, is that like a sign, like a symbolism for like innocence or something like that? And Steve just gets angry. He's like, what the hell are you doing? Who the hell do you think you're talking to? 
she like crouches up, just starts immediately wiping up the spilled milk. Like, just get out of here, okay? And in comes Vic and Tad. And Tad's like, Mommy, Mommy! And immediately he stops in the doorway. He sees Steve there. He sees his mom crouched on the floor. He sees the mask. He's like, what happened? He is just so concerned with his, like, his mom. Like, Mommy, are you okay? Because Vic kind of shoes him off, like, go outside and ride your bike, okay? Go outside. And, and, and Tana just keeps, keeps looking over his shoulder, like, are you sure, Mommy? Are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm okay. Go ride your bike. Vic comes in, and he looks at both Steve, and he looks at Donna. And Steve immediately is like, oh, I, I brought your table back, but I spilled some. And Donna's like, Steve... look like Steve is kind of smirking. The thing is, Steve ducks out of there really fast. Vic doesn't say, hey, I want to talk to you. Do not go far. He just looks at Donna, who is crouched on the floor. Still, you're going to need more than that little dishcloth to wipe up that milk. That is a big ass. I don't know how much milk was in that cup, but it was a fucking lot of it. So, he just looks at her down on the floor and says, just says, yes or no. She looks at him over her shoulder. She looks up at him over her shoulder and just, yes. Like, just, I don't know what else to say. Like, so that basically confirmed his suspicions of what he saw the other day. In the book, however, Steve actually gets a business card of Vic's that I guess was in Donna's purse, wallet, on a dresser. I don't know. And he, like, writes him a letter or something that mentions about, hey, you have a good-looking wife. You know, let me see it. Let me get it in the book here. So... When Donna and Tad were married, and shortly after they had Tad, Tad was about a year old, they were living in New York, I guess, before they came to Castle Rock, Maine. And the scene here in the book where Steve is confronting Donna about why she wants to end things with him, which is clear as fucking crystal to us, I know, we also learned that at one point before marrying Vic... Donna had been a librarian in the Westchester school system, and her own private nightmare had always been telling the kids for the third time in her loudest speaking voice to quiet down at once, please. When she did that, they always had enough for her to get through the period, at least. But what if they wouldn't? That was her nightmare. What if they absolutely wouldn't? What did that leave? The question scared her. It scared her to such... It scared her that such a question should ever have to be asked, even to oneself in the dark of night. She had been afraid to use her loudest voice and had done so only when it became absolutely necessary because that was where civilization came to an abrupt halt. That was the place where the tar turned to dirt. If they wouldn't listen when you used your very loudest voice, a scream became your only recourse. 
she's talking about that same fear when she, you know, is yelling at Steve to leave. Like, get out of here. You're not welcome. She, she even says to him, go be God's gift to some other woman. Oh, and she also says, oh, and take the bureau with you. And then, of course, he mentions something like, oh, yeah, and then I can just take it with me, and then that way your husband can come and get it, and he and I can have a chat. He, yeah, he even, he sends, like, a letter or something, or a, even a note to Vic at his job. It seems in a way, like, in the book, you just hear a lot more about Donna, the fear of getting older and just being in a rut in her day-to-day -day life of watching soap operas and feeding Ted his franken-beans and all of this stuff. He's looking to mix up the monotony of, you know, her relation, her marriage with Vic just feels like it's gone, gone kind of stale. So, oh my gosh. Oh my god, this letter, that this note that he writes, that Steve writes to Vic in the book says, Hello Vic, nice wife you've got there. I enjoyed fucking the shit out of her. Good grief, does he actually send this fucking thing? I think he does. Because Vic gets it and he's like sitting on a park bench in the park kind of. And he's met, he also, Steve mentions something that only a spouse would know physically about another spouse that they, when they've been intimate together. Because Steve says, to me, it looks like a question mark. Do you have any questions? Also, the thing about the Pinto, as it says in the book, it had just over 20,000 miles on it and was still... Six months from being there is free and clear. Are you fucking kidding me? So it's got the thing said 20,000 miles. That is like nothing. And they're still fucking paying it off. At one point it probably was new. And it's given, oh my gosh. I, I, yeah, but Pinto, Pintos I hear were like piece of shit cars. And, you know, even Vic is trying to get I don't know, he apparently thinks he's Mr. Handyman. Maybe he can do some things, but uh, he sure as fuck can't fix that Pinto. And in the book, you know, because he's going to be gone, you know, Vic's going to be gone, and Donna's like, oh, I feel so stupid sometimes. If I could use a standard shift, I could just run the jag while you're gone. And Vic says, you're just as well off. The jag's eccentric. You got to talk to it. And, of course, he slams the hood down of the Pinto, and I guess Donna had brought him some iced tea while he was working on it, and she's, oh, you dummy, your ice glass, iced tea glass was in there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, here in the next scene, Vic is trying and failing to fix Donna's car issue here with what's going on. And here comes Tad, who's just... You know, comes over and props his, you know, arms up on the side of the hood, you know, to watch his dad work. And Vic realizes shortly, he's like, no, 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 no. So, like something, I don't know what he's trying to grab or something. It's like, don't, 
oh, you son of a, and then of course he sees Tad there, so he doesn't say, son of a bitch, he doesn't say that. And Vic asks, well, what's up, Tad, what's going on? And Ted says, I don't want you to go. And Vic's like, well, I'll be back. I'll be back in 10 days. <laughs> and Ted takes a deep breath. Like, but I don't want to go to day camp. And Vic, who's just irritated, is like, don't talk to, try to talk to somebody when they're working on something. Because especially if they're fucking agitated. Because they're going to give you nothing but attitude. As Vic says, well, why don't you give that another day or two, all right? Just deal with it. Like, you're fo it'll be fine. And, of course, here's the other thing. With Vic saying the monster words every single night to Tad, it's like their bedtime routine. So, <laughs> you know, as Tad asks, like, well, who's going to say the monster words? Mommy don't know them. And then he, Vic finally stops what he's doing and looks at Tad. And, of course, you know, Vic, sits, uh, you know, Tad up on the side of the hood and just says, you know, Tad, the thing about the monster words is, you know, they're they're written down, and that's the only way your dad can know them. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll copy them for you, and that way your mom can read them to you every night. And you make sure, it's like, do you promise? Like, yes, I will do it. I will do it tonight. I will take care of that. And Donna, of course, comes out. It's like, all right, Tad, it's time for your nap. And Vic says, I love you, buddy. I love you, sport. And just completely ignoring. But the way that she asked him, oh, did you fix it? He's like, no, I don't have the tools. Take it out to Joe Cambers. It's only a, like a few miles. He says, no, I don't have the tools. Take it out to Joe Cambers. It's only seven miles. But he's just, he's very dismissive, which I get it. The fact that, you know, his wife cheated on him, so it's like, he's not really going to do her any favors. I mean, he he tried to work on the car, but it almost seemed like it was like a half-hearted attempt. Like, I guess I'll see what I can do. Well, I can't do it. So, you know, you, you can take care of it. Like, this is your problem. It's your car. I have a business meeting. I got my own shit going on with this 10-day business meeting. So I need to focus on that. And she's like, yeah, maybe. And he says, well, I'll try and run it up Saturday if I, if I can get the time. And she says, no, don't don't worry. I'll, I'll take care of it. That's, just, it's, that's my own thing where I usually will say, don't worry, I'll take care of it. It's like, especially if it's something like Jeremy doesn't want to, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's something like really, that doesn't look like something I really want to do or that seems like a or he'll say it sounds like a lot of work I'm like I'll take care of it and by take care of it I mean I'll like <laughs> not guilt you into doing it but I'll like hang back as you like oh I can work on it and you can like super you know watch me and step in when you need to whereas more is like well he'll he'll do it but then I'm like oh or, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, things are definitely frosty between them. <laughs> so, we see Ted asleep in his bed, and there are the monster words tacked on the closet door. Great place for him. Unless it's like these words, monster words, by tacking it onto the closet door, this 
represents the power to keep the monster at bay in the closet so he won't get out or something like that. So here are the monster words in the book. Monsters, stay out of this room. You have no business here. No monsters under Tad's bed. You can't fit under there. No monsters hiding in Tad's closet. It's too small in there. No monsters outside of Tad's window. You can't hold on out there. Quinn, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, not, that's not a line. <laughs> no vampires, no werewolves, no things that bite. You have no business here. Nothing will touch Ted or hurt Ted all this night. You have no business here. So the next day, morning I should say, it is very, very foggy out. Like so much so, they used a fog machine to create this effect. And it was like a marine type, fog type thing. I don't know. But it was so bad that the fire department, according to the trivia, the fire department had to be called out because it was just, someone probably thought there was a fire going on with all the smoke. And of course, I think it's in the trivia because you hear all this, you know, you see the porch of the Camber house and Brett coming along the side and then you hear this, you know, I think it's like, some man, like, sound effect man, like, doing, like, you know, dog, like, whining, whimpering into, like, a funnel type that, <laughs> that it kind of expels the voice, like, makes it louder. It does kind of sound a little over the top. But at this point, because Brett is looking for Cujo in the fog, and... He keeps, like, hearing, like, the whimpering, and then all of a sudden, he, I don't know whether it's a weeping willow tree or something, and then all of a sudden, Cujo is full-fledged rabid at this point. He is just growling and just, and, and Brett is just surprised, like, what happened to a sweet dog? Like, Cujo likes kids. He's a good dog. Even Brett, you know, he reaches out to show, like, Cujo, what's the matter, boy? Don't you recognize me? It's me, Brett. And just Kucha just growling and because Brett reaches his hand out like to touch him, and then he like yanks his hand back. And, you know he's gonna get bitten. Kucha, where the hell is he? A forest nearby? How large is their yard? It looks like a wooded area. Don and him that his dog might have rabies. Cujo! Cujo! So this is the last amount of restraint that Cujo has as he's you know growls at his boy. Doesn't bite him, 
but he it's almost like basically he does not recognize Brett anymore. And this is his last little ounce of restraint to keep him from killing his boy. As he looks over his shoulder, well, after, you know, he starts to walk away, Cujo stops and kind of looks back. And it's just, it's like he spares his life. And that is the last ounce of restraint that this dog has. Like, I'd say maybe the rabies is now taken over. I'd say like 98% of his mind is like now rabid to the point of no return. Except for that 2% of restraint that he uses on Brett. So real quick, I want to jump back to Charity actually talking to Brett about going to visit her sister. Can I talk to you a minute, Brett? Miles' surprise turned to something like amazement. Looking at her, he saw something utterly foreign to his mother's taciturn nature. She was nervous. He closed his book and said, Sure, Mom. Would you like... She cleared her throat and began again. How would you like to go down to Stratford, Connecticut and see your Aunt Holly and your Uncle Jim and your cousins? Brett grinned. He had only been out of Maine twice in his life, most recently with his father on a trip to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They had gone to a used car auction where Joe had picked up a 58 Ford with a Hemi engine. Sure, when? I was thinking of Monday, after the weekend of the 4th. We'd be gone a week. Could you do that? I guess. Geez, I thought Dad had a lot of work lined up for next week. He must have. I haven't mentioned this to your father yet. Brett's grin fell apart. He picked up a piece of bacon and began to eat it. Well, I know he promised Richie Sims he'd pull the motor on his international harvester and Mr. Miller from the school was going to bring over his Ford because the tranny shot. And I thought just the two of us would go, Charity said. On the Greyhound from Portland. Brett looked doubtful. Outside the back porch screen, Cujo padded slowly up the steps and collapsed on the boards in the shade with a grunt. He looked in at the boy and the woman with weary, red-rimmed eyes. He was feeling very bad now. Very bad indeed. Geez, Mom, I don't know. Don't say geez. It's just the same as swearing. Sorry. Would you like to go if your father said it was all right? Yeah, really. Do you think we could? You really think we could? Maybe. She was looking through the window over the sink thoughtfully. How far is it to Stratford, Mom? About 350 miles, I guess. Gee, I mean, boy, that's a long way, is it? Brett, he looked at her attentively. That curious, intense quality was back in her voice and on her face. That nervousness. What, Mom? Can you think of anything your father needs out in the shop? Any one thing he's been looking to get? The light dawned in Brett's eyes a little. Well, he always needs adjustable wrenches, and he's been wanting a new set of ball and sockets, and he could use a new welder's helmet since the old one got a crack in the faceplate. No, I mean anything big, expensive. Brett thought a while, then smiled. Well, what he'd really like to have is a new Jorgen chainfall, I guess. Rip that old motor out of Richie's Sims's international just as slick as she, I, well, slick. He blushed and hurried on. But you couldn't get him nothing like that, Mom. That's really dear. Dear. Joe's word for expensive. She hated it.
how much? Well, the one in the catalog says $1,700, but Dad could probably get it for Mr. Belasco at Portland Machine for wholesale. Dad says Mr. Belasco is scared of him. Do you think there's something smart about that? She asked sharply. Brett sat in his chair, a little frightened by her fierceness. He couldn't even remember his mother ever acting quite like this. Even Cujo, out on the porch, pricked his ears a little. Well, do you? No, Mom. But yeah, clearly Charity is not a fan of Brett finding that's an admirable quality in his dad, that people are scared of him. So Charity also mentions about the lottery ticket. The green number on our ticket, 76, and the red number, 434, matched the numbers drawn by the State Lottery Commission two weeks before. She had checked it dozens of times, unable to believe it. She had invested 50 cents that week, as she had done every week since the lottery began in 1975, and this time she had won $5,000. She hadn't cashed the ticket in yet, but neither had she, had she let it out of her sight or reach since she found it. We do have that kind of money. <laughs> Alright, so it looks like Charity was able to get that Jorian Chainfall, whichever whole thing for wholesale, which I guess turned out to be, what, $1,241.71? That's not bad compared to, like, whatever the catalog price was of 1700 Oh, okay, here we go. So we do get how much. It's 5000 minus $800 for taxes, so that would be, what, 4200 That is not fucking bad at all. That is not bad. It's still, <laughs> that's pretty damn good, honestly. So actually, when the two men are delivering that engine hoist thing into the barn as a surprise for Joe Camber, they do see Cujo there, and Cujo... They, the, these two strangers clearly can tell there's something off about this dog. The fact that the dog is growling at them, and it's like they make a be like getting, they can't get in their truck fast enough. And they mention about how that dog just, it's not right. There's something not right about that dog. And like, you, you probably want to let Joe can, he might, uh, I might, Maybe I ought to give Joe Camber a call. Might tell him what happened. Might save him from getting his arm chewed off. Oh yeah, neither of them called Joe Camber. And it says here, neither of them thought about Cujo again until they read about him in the paper. So that is foreshadowing for yes, what's to come. So yeah, Vic gets the note that Steve Kemp said. God. And you feel bad for the guy because he's not expecting anything like that at all. So, yeah, of course he gets upset and cries. I mean, this is his wife and someone. And just the words that Steve uses saying, I enjoyed fucking the shit out of your wife. I mean, my good, how is a man, else is a man supposed to take that? I mean, sure, he probably thought, you know, he and his wife... Didn't have sex that often, but I, well, and he even at one point thinks whether or not she actually is, you know, fucking around on him with someone else. And so he ends up calling Donna saying, hey, I'm going to be out late, just feed Tad his dinner. And she even knows his voice sounds a little strange, probably because he's upset and crying. 
And Vic even thinks about just taking Tad and just leaving with him. But he knows, you know, Tad being four, he's pretty perceptive. He would probably want to know why, like, what's going on. Of course, this is right before Tad. Vic is supposed to leave for a 10-day work trip, you know, to fix the whole sharp serial professor and shit like that. Now he's got this weighing on his mind. Can you imagine? You gotta be bringing your A-game to this fucking meeting and fix this work issue, and now you just found out your spouse is having an extramarital fling behind your back. So yeah, it looks like Steve Kemp skipped town. He just zipped as soon as he mailed that letter, he was out of there. And Vic does confront Donna about it in a way she tries to explain away saying you know it was more of fear of her getting old and he's like really that's why because you felt like you're getting old so you decided to have a fling <laughs> we also do in the book also hear about Cujo like I said Cujo's point of view these vivid dreams of us attacking you know his boy, you know, Joe, and, and, you know, Charity and stuff like that. And he even says, he was continually thirsty, but he had already begun to shy away from his water dish some of the time. And when he did drink, the water tasted like steel shavings. The water made his teeth ache. The water sent bolts of pain through his eyes. And now he lay on the grass, not caring about the lightning bugs or anything else. Yeah, he's basically just hanging out with Joe and Gary. We're basically shooting the shit at Gary's place. Okay, so the encounter with Cujo, I want to read that in the book because it's a smidge different. And then the growling began. His heart leapt into his throat and he fell back a step. You know, this is a bubble. All his muscles tensing into bundles of wire. His first panicky thought, like a child who had, has suddenly tumbled into a fairy tale, was wolf. He looked around wildly. There was nothing to see but white. Cujo came out of the fog. Brad began to make a whining noise in his throat. The dog he had grown up with, the dog who had pulled a yelling, gleeful five-year-old Brett patiently around and around the dooryard on his flexible flyer, buckled into a harness Joe had made in the shop. The dog who had waited calmly by the mailbox every afternoon during school for the bus, come shine or shower. That dog bore only the slightest resemblance to the muddy, matted apparition slowly materializing from the morning mist. The St. Bernard's big, sad eyes were now reddish and stupid and lowering, more pig's eyes than dog's eyes. His coat was plated with brownish-green mud, as if he had been rolling around in the boggy place at the bottom of the meadow. His muzzle was wrinkled back in a terrible mock grin that froze Brett with horror. Brett felt his heart slugging away in his throat. Thick white foam dripped slowly from Cujo's teeth. Cujo? No. Cujo? Brett whispered. And he calls him Cuji. Cujo looked at the boy not recognizing him anymore. Not his looks, not the shadings of his clothes. He could not precisely see colors, at least as human beings understand them, not his scent. What he saw was a monster on two legs. Cujo was sick, and all things appeared monstrous to him now. His head clanged dully with murder. He wanted to bite and rip and tear. Oh yeah, okay, I'm not reading that part. 
Then the monstrous figure, figure spoke, and Cujo recognized his voice. It was the boy, the boy, and the boy had never done him any harm. Once he had loved the boy and would have died for him, had that been called for. There was enough of that feeling left to hold the image of murder at bay until it grew as murky as the fog around them. It broke up and rejoined the buzzing, clamorous river of his sickness. Cujo? What's wrong, boy? The last of the dog that had been before the bat scratched its nose turned away, and the sick and dangerous dog, subverted for the last time, was forced to turn with it. Cujo stumbled and moved deeper into the fog, foam splattering from his muzzle onto the dirt. He broke into a lumbering run, hoping to outrun the sickness, but it ran with him. Buzzing and yammering, making him ache with hatred and murder. He began to roll over and over in the high Timothy grass, snapping at it, his eyes rolling. The world was a crazy sea of smells. He would track each to its source and dismember it. Cujo began to growl again. He found his feet. He slipped deeper into the fog that was even now beginning to thin a big dog who weighed just under 200 pounds. Brett stood in the doorway for more than 15 minutes after Cujo had melted back into the fog, not knowing what to do. Cujo had been sick. It might have, he might have eaten a poison, poison bait or something. Brett knew about rabies, and if he had ever seen a woodchuck or a fox or a porcupine exhibiting the same symptoms, he would have guessed rabies. But it never crossed his mind that his dog could have that awful disease of the brain and the nervous system. A poison bait that seemed the most likely. He should tell his father. His father could call the vet. Or maybe Dad could do something himself. Like that time two years ago when he had pulled the porcupine needles out of Cujo's muzzle with its pliers, working each quill first up, then down, then out, being careful not to break them off because they would fester in there. Yes, he would have to tell his dad. Dad would do something. Like that time Cujo got into it with Mr. Porcupine. So, of course, Brett thinks about the trip that he and his mom are going to be going on shortly and whether or not he should actually tell his dad because if he does tell his dad, his dad will probably make them stay home. And that, you know that's the last thing that Charity wants because this is not just a trip to visit her sister. There is more to it than that. This is a, I'm leaving you and I'm taking her son with me, but I'm disguising it under just a visit to see my sister when it's more like we're not coming back. Oh, Vic, it's the morning that he leaves on his trip. And of course, Tad's like, I don't want you to go for 10 days. I just want you to go for one day. And Vic says, I will be back before you know it. And they kiss goodbye. Of course, as Vic is getting ready to turn on the ignition and everything to the car, he's like, oh, shit, I forgot to take the pinot into Camber's. And Donna's like, I'll, I'll take care of it. It'll be fine. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. What else, honestly, is there to say? Vic says, well, I'll, I'll see ya. Not, I love you, Donna. Not, I'll call you when I get to the hotel. None of it. Like, well, I'll, I'll see ya. Like, what else is there to say? Your spouse cheated on you.
I'll see you. Hell is running down a gravel driveway in bare feet. Nobody that has their uh, head on the shoulders. I just wanted you to know it was over. I just wanted to be sure that you knew that. I can't make that it never happened, Vic. I can't make like it never happened either. I know. I know that. So I don't know what I'm going to do either. So Vic pulls away and Donna's like, Ted, stay there. And she runs after Vic who stops the car. He doesn't, <laughs> I'm surprised he doesn't just keep going. Like, I don't want to talk to you right now. And she wants to assure Vic, like, I wanted you to know that it's over. I just want to make sure that you knew that. And she's bent down, you know, arms on the side of the door looking at him and he will not even look at her he just keeps staring straight ahead and she says i i can't make like it never happened he says i can't make like it never happened either donna and she's like i know i know and he says you know i i don't know what i'm gonna do it's like basically i gotta focus on work i do not have time to deal with this or even think about this so i'll just i'll see you when i get back and we'll just go from there. Like, I'm tabling this until I get back from the trip, so. I mean, what does she expect him, like, what does she exactly want him to say, don't worry, it's okay, I understand why you did it. What What? What does she want, like, absolution from her mistake? I don't know. I don't know. It's like, is she trying to make herself feel less guilty? But I don't I don't know. So Joe backs up the station wagon as Brett brings a couple of suitcases out. And Joe comes out and takes his hat. Takes his hat. This is the thing. I, t I know. You're probably like, why are you making a big deal of him taking his hat off? Because the whole time he had his hat on, it looked like he had a full head of hair. And when he takes it off, you just see the ring line of hair going around his scalp. <laughs> it's like this whole time he's been hiding a secret under his hat. And it's the fact that he is mostly balding. Which he looks to be probably close to the same age as Vic. There are people, you know, genetics and stuff probably force him to go prematurely bald at a young age. And honestly, it's not that bad because it kind of crowned, like, to the middle of his head where the balding starts to, it, like, stops. And then, like, he's still got a ring of hair. I don't know where the hell that Brett was going to go because Joe's like, get the rest of the bags, Brett. One indication that she is not coming back, and like I said, I wouldn't have realized this until I was an adult and I, you know, I heard that review. They brought it up and said... Well, she's taking her photo album, so clearly she is not coming back. So, Brett comes in to tell Charity, like, Mom, I saw Cujo this morning in the fog. He was all bloody. He was dripping foam at the mouth. And he, the way he kind of pats the back of the couch kind of is like, I think I better tell Dad, as in, yeah, I think I should do that. And Charity stops and like, no, 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 no. You'll do no such thing. 
Yeah, she says, your father would just jump on something like that. You just leave Cujo be. He'll come mooch around your dad, and your dad will take care of it. He loves Cujo. Yeah, I mean, he's always taking him over to Gary's. And the way that Brett says, yeah, I guess he would. And she says, you know, when, when we get to, you know, my sister, you know, you can call your dad later tonight. And when you talk to him on the phone, you say kind of casually, you feeding my dog, daddy? And you know, and Brett just looks at her like, yeah. And we hear Joe, Brett! <laughs> on the bags. Like, you're only going awake. How much damn shit are you taking with you? And I'm surprised that didn't tip him off. It's like, how? Well, she's got a suitcase. Brett's got, like, well, no, wait, no. She's just got, like, a cardigan or something over her arm. And he's got, like, another giant-ass suitcase. So, that plus the other two. It's not like she's telling Brett what's going to happen. Like, we're actually going to stay there. So you take whatever you need to that means the most to you. We can't take Cujo. But anything else, just put it in a suitcase. Basically traveling light. We don't want to. But no, I mean, I can imagine she would not tell Brett that. They're going to be staying there. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed a part one of my review of 1983 Stephen King's Cujo. And we're cutting it off at this point. And then the next point, part two, is going to begin with Gary, Joe Camber's friend Gary's death. This is Cujo's first kill as he is now fully rabid. Although I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, since we've hit the three-hour mark, you guys have probably forgotten, like, okay, where's the cutoff at? So I'm just reminding you, if you enjoy this review and you want to share support for the podcast, you can look up the Wonder Years podcast on iTunes and leave a review for the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me and tell me if you enjoyed the review, if you liked the movie, you can send an email to LBOM. Wonder Years Podcast at gmail.com. All right. So, next review is going to be up on the 31st. So, two days from now, Halloween to be exact. So, look for part two coming to SoundCloud, the, L the Wonder Years Podcast. Looking back at my Wonder Years Podcast on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. All right. Bye bye.